0: book 5 chapters 13 through 26 of the city of god this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by Darren l slider www.logoslibrary.org the city of god by st augustine of hippo book 5 chapter 13 Wherefore, when the kingdoms of the East had been illustrious for a long time, it pleased God that there should also arise a Western Empire, which, though later in time, should be more illustrious in extent and greatness. And in order that it might overcome the grievous evils which existed among other nations, he purposely granted it to such men as, for the sake of honour and praise and glory, consulted well for their country, in whose glory they sought their own, and whose safety they did not hesitate to prefer to their own, suppressing the desire of wealth and many other vices for this one vice, namely the love of praise. For he has the soundest perception who recognizes that even the love of praise is a vice. Nor has this escaped the perception of the poet Horace, who says, You are bloated by ambition? Take advice. Yon book will ease you if you read it thrice. And the same poet, in a lyric song, hath thus spoken with a desire of repressing the passion for domination. RULE thy AMBITIOUS SPIRIT, AND THOU HAST A WIDER KINGDOM THAN IF THOU SHOULDST JOIN TO DISTANT GADES LIBYA, AND THUS SHOULDST HOLD IN SERVICE EITHER CARTHAGINIAN. NEVERTHELESS THEY WHO RESTRAIN BASER lusts NOT BY THE POWER OF THE HOLY SPIRIT OBTAINED BY THE FAITH OF PIETY, OR BY THE LOVE OF INTELLIGIBLE BEAUTY, BUT BY DESIRE OF HUMAN PRAISE, OR AT ALL EVENTS RESTRAIN THEM BETTER BY THE LOVE OF SUCH PRAISE, ARE NOT INDEED YET HOLY, BUT ONLY LESS BASE. EVEN Tully WAS NOT ABLE TO CONCEAL THIS FACT, For in the same books which he wrote, De Republica, when speaking concerning the education of a chief of the state, who ought, he says, to be nourished on glory, goes on to say that their ancestors did many wonderful and illustrious things through desire of glory. So far, therefore, from resisting this vice, they even thought that it ought to be excited and kindled up, supposing that that would be beneficial to the republic. But not even in his books on philosophy does Tully dissimulate this poisonous opinion, for he there avows it more clearly than day. For when he is speaking of those studies which are to be pursued with a view to the true good, and not with the vainglorious desire of human praise, he introduces the following universal and general statement. Honor nourishes the arts, and all are stimulated to the prosecution of studies by glory, and those pursuits are always neglected which are generally discredited. CHAPTER Fourteen. It is therefore doubtless far better to resist this desire than to yield to it, for the purer one is from this defilement, the liker is he to God. And, though this vice be not thoroughly eradicated from his heart, for it does not cease to tempt even the minds of those who are making good progress in virtue, at any rate let the desire of glory be surpassed by the love of righteousness, so that, if there be seen anywhere lying neglected things which are generally discredited, if they are good, if they are right, even the love of human praise may blush and yield to the love of truth. For so hostile is this vice to pious faith, if the love of glory be greater in the heart than the fear or love of God, that the Lord said, How can ye believe who look for glory from one another, and do not seek the glory which is from God alone? Also, concerning some who had believed on him, but were afraid to confess him openly, the evangelist says, They loved the praise of men more than the praise of God which did not the holy apostles, who, when they proclaimed the name of Christ in those places where it was not only discredited, and therefore neglected, according as Cicero says, those things are always neglected which are generally discredited, but was even held in the utmost detestation, holding to what they had heard from the good Master, who was also the physician of minds, if any one shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father, who is in heaven, and before the angels of God, amidst maledictions and reproaches, and most grievous persecutions and cruel punishments were not deterred from the preaching of human salvation by the noise of human indignation. And when, as they did, and spake divine things, and lived divine lives, conquering, as it were, hard hearts, and introducing into them the peace of righteousness, great glory followed them in the church of Christ, they did not rest in that as in the end of their virtue, but referring that glory itself to the glory of God, by whose grace they were what they were, they sought to kindle, also by that same flame, the minds of those for whose good they consulted, to the love of him by whom they could be made to be what they themselves were. For their master had taught them not to seek to be good for the sake of human glory, saying, Take heed that ye do not your righteousness before men to be seen of them, or otherwise ye shall not have a reward from your Father who is in heaven. But again, lest, understanding this wrongly, they should, through fear of pleasing men, be less useful through concealing their goodness, showing for what end they ought to make it known, he says, Let your works shine before men, that they may see your good deeds, and glorify your Father who is in heaven.' Not observe that ye may be seen by them, that is, in order that their eyes may be directed upon you, for of yourselves ye are nothing, but that they may glorify your Father who is in heaven, by fixing their regards on whom they may become such as ye are. These the martyrs followed, who surpassed the Scyvillas and the Curtiuses, and the deciuses both in true virtue, because in true piety, and also in the greatness of their number.' But since those Romans were in an earthly city, and had before them, as the end of all the offices undertaken in its behalf, its safety, and a kingdom not in heaven but in earth, not in the sphere of eternal life, but in the sphere of demise and succession, where the dead are succeeded by the dying, what else but glory should they love, by which they wished even after death to live in the mouths of their admirers? CHAPTER fifteen. Now, therefore, with regard to those to whom God did not purpose to give eternal life with his holy angels in his own celestial city, to the society of which that true piety which does not render the service of religion, which the Greeks call Latreia, to any save the true God conducts, if he had also withheld from them the terrestrial glory of that most excellent empire, a reward would not have been rendered to their good arts, that is, their virtues, by which they sought to attain so great glory.' For as to those who seem to do some good that they may receive glory from men, the Lord also says, Verily I say unto you, they have received their reward. So also these despised their own private affairs for the sake of the Republic, and for its treasury resisted avarice, consulted for the good of their country with a spirit of freedom, addicted neither to what their laws pronounced to be crime, nor to lust. By all these acts, as by the true way, they pressed forward to honours, power, and glory. They were honoured among almost all nations, they imposed the laws of their empire upon many nations, and at this day, both in literature and history, they are glorious among almost all nations. There is no reason why they should complain against the justice of the supreme and true God. They have received their reward. CHAPTER sixteen. But the reward of the saints is far different, who even here endured reproaches for that city of God which is hateful to the lovers of this world. That city is eternal. There none are born, for none die. There is true and full felicity, not a goddess, but a gift of God. Thence we receive the pledge of faith, whilst on our pilgrimage we sigh for its beauty. There rises not the sun on the good and the evil, but the sun of righteousness protects the good alone. There no great industry shall be expended to enrich the public treasury by suffering privations at home, for there is the common treasury of truth.' And, therefore, it was not only for the sake of recompensing the citizens of Rome that her empire and glory had been so signally extended, but also that the citizens of that eternal city, during their pilgrimage here, might diligently and soberly contemplate these examples, and see what a love they owe to the supernal country on account of life eternal, if the terrestrial country was so much beloved by its citizens on account of human glory. CHAPTER Seventeen for as far as this life of mortals is concerned which is spent and ended in a few days what does it matter under whose government a dying man lives if they who govern do not force him to impiety and iniquity did the romans at all harm those nations on whom when subjugated they imposed their laws except in as far as that was accomplished with great slaughter and war now had it been done with consent of the nations it would have been done with greater success but there would have been no glory of conquest for neither did the romans themselves live exempt from those laws which they imposed on others Had this been done without Mars and Bologna, so that there should have been no place for victory, no one conquering, where no one had fought, would not the condition of the Romans and of the other nations have been one and the same, especially if that had been done at once, which afterwards was done most humanely and most acceptably, namely the admission of all to the rights of Roman citizens who belonged to the Roman Empire, and if that had been made the privilege of all which was formerly the privilege of a few, with this one condition, that the humbler class who had no lands of their own should live at the public expense?— an elementary impost which would have been paid with a much better grace by them into the hands of good administrators of the republic of which they were members by their own hearty consent than it would have been paid with had it to be extorted from them as conquered men For I do not see what it makes for the safety, good morals, and certainly not for the dignity of men, that some have conquered and others have been conquered, except that it yields them that most insane pomp of human glory, in which they have received their reward, who burned with excessive desire of it, and carried on most eager wars. For do not their lands pay tribute? Have they any privilege of learning what the others are not privileged to learn? Are there not many senators in the other countries who do not even know Rome by sight?' Take away outward show, and what are all men, after all but men. But even though the perversity of the age should permit that all the better men should be more highly honoured than others, neither thus should human honour be held at a great price, for it is smoke which has no weight. But let us avail ourselves even in these things of the kindness of God. Let us consider how great things they despised, how great things they endured, what lusts they subdued for the sake of human glory, who merited that glory, as it were, in reward for such virtues. And let this be useful to us even in suppressing pride, so that, as that city in which it has been promised us to reign as far surpasses this one, as heaven is distant from the earth, as eternal life surpasses temporal joy, solid glory, empty praise, or the society of angels, the society of mortals, or the glory of him who made the sun and moon the light of the sun and moon. The citizens of so great a country may not seem to themselves to have done anything very great, if, in order to obtain it, they have done some good works, or endured some evils, when those men for this terrestrial country already obtained, did such great things, suffered such great things.' and especially are all these things to be considered because the remission of sins which collects citizens to the celestial country has something in it to which a shadowy resemblance is found in that asylum of romulus whither escape from the punishment of all manner of crimes congregated that multitude with which the state was to be founded chapter 18 what great thing therefore is it for that eternal and celestial city to despise all the charms of this world however pleasant if for the sake of this terrestrial city brutus could even put to death his son a sacrifice which the heavenly city compels no one to make But certainly it is more difficult to put to death one's sons than to do what is required to be done for the heavenly country, even to distribute to the poor those things which were looked upon as things to be amassed and laid up for one's children, or to let them go, if there arise any temptation which compels us to do so, for the sake of faith and righteousness. For it is not earthly riches which make us or our sons happy, for they must either be lost by us in our lifetime, or be possessed when we are dead, by whom we know not, or perhaps by whom we would not. But it is God who makes us happy, who is the true riches of minds. But of Brutus, even the poet who celebrates his praises, testifies that it was the occasion of unhappiness to him that he slew his son. For he says, And call his own rebellious seed for menaced liberty to bleed. Unhappy father, howsoe'er the deed be judged by after days. But in the following verse he consoles him in his unhappiness, saying, His country's love shall all o'erbear. There are those two things, namely liberty and the desire of human praise, which compelled the Romans to admirable deeds. If, therefore, for the liberty of dying men, and for the desire of human praise which is sought after by mortals, sons could be put to death by a father, what great thing is it, if, for the true liberty which has made us free from the dominion of sin and death and the devil, not through the desire of human praise, but through the earnest desire of freeing men, not from King Tarquin, but from demons and the prince of the demons, we should, I do not say put to death our sons, but reckon among our sons Christ's poor ones?' If also another Roman chief, surnamed Torquatus, slew his son, not because he fought against his country, but because, being challenged by an enemy, he through youthful impetuosity fought, though for his country, yet contrary to orders which he his father had given as general, and this he did, notwithstanding that his son was victorious, lest there should be more evil in the example of authority despised than good in the glory of slaying an enemy.' if i say torquatus acted thus wherefore should they boast themselves who for the laws of a celestial country despise all earthly good things which are loved far less than sons if furious camillus who was condemned by those who envied him notwithstanding that he had thrown off from the necks of his countrymen the yoke of their most bitter enemies the Veientes again delivered his ungrateful country from the gauls, because he had no other in which he could have better opportunities for living a life of glory, if Camillus did thus, why should he be extolled as having done some great thing, who, having, it may be, suffered in the church at the hands of carnal enemies most grievous and dishonouring injury, has not betaken himself to heretical enemies, or himself raised some heresy against her, but has rather defended her, as far as he was able, from the most pernicious perversity of heretics, since there is not another church, I say not not in which one can live a life of glory but in which eternal life can be obtained if mucius in order that peace might be made with king porsenna who was pressing the romans with a most grievous war when he did not succeed in slaying porsenna but slew another by mistake for him "'reached forth his right hand, and laid it on a red-hot altar, "'saying that many such as he saw him to be had conspired for his destruction, "'so that Porsena, terrified at his daring, "'and at the thought of a conspiracy of such as he, "'without any delay recalled all his warlike purposes, and made peace. "'If, I say, Mucius did this, "'who shall speak of his meritorious claims to the kingdom of heaven, "'if for it he may have given to the flames not one hand, "'but even his whole body, and that not by his own spontaneous act, "'but because he was persecuted by another?' if curtius spurring on his steed threw himself all armed into a precipitous gulf obeying the oracles of their gods which had commanded that the romans should throw into that gulf the best thing which they possessed and they could only understand thereby that since they excelled in men and arms the gods had commanded that an armed man should be cast headlong into that destruction If he did this, shall we say that that man has done a great thing for the eternal city, who may have died by a like death, not, however, precipitating himself spontaneously into a gulf, but having suffered this death at the hands of some enemy of his faith, more especially when he has received from his lord, who is also king of his country, a more certain oracle, fear not them who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul if the decii dedicated themselves to death consecrating themselves in a form of words as it were that falling and pacifying by their blood the wrath of their gods they might be the means of delivering the roman army if they did this, let not the holy martyrs carry themselves proudly, as though they had done some meritorious thing for a share in that country where our eternal life and felicity, if even to the shedding of their blood, loving not only the brethren for whom it was shed, but according as had been commanded them, even their enemies by whom it was being shed, they have vied with one another in faith of love and love of faith. If Marcus Polvilus, when engaged in dedicating a temple to Jupiter, Juno, and Minerva, received with such indifference the false intelligence which was brought to him of the death of his son, with the intention of so agitating him that he should go away, and thus the glory of dedicating the temple should fall to his colleague, if he received that intelligence with such indifference that he even ordered that his son should be cast out unburied, the love of glory having overcome in his heart the grief of bereavement, how shall any one affirm that he had done a great thing for the preaching of the gospel, by which the the citizens of the heavenly city are delivered from diverse errors, and gathered together from diverse wanderings, to whom his lord has said, when anxious about the burial of his father, Follow me, and let the dead bury their dead regulus in order not to break his oath even with his most cruel enemies returned to them from rome itself because as he is said to have replied to the romans when they wished to retain him he could not have the dignity of an honourable citizen at rome after having been a slave to the africans and the carthaginians put him to death with the utmost tortures because he had spoken against them in the senate if regulus acted thus what tortures are not to be despised for the sake of good faith toward that country to whose beatitude faith itself leads or what will a man have rendered to the lord for all he has bestowed upon him if for the faithfulness he owes to him he shall have suffered such things as regulus suffered at the hands of his most ruthless enemies for the good faith which he owed to them And how shall a Christian dare vaunt himself of his voluntary poverty, which he has chosen, in order that during the pilgrimage of this life he may walk the more disencumbered on the way which leads to the country, where the true riches are, even God himself? How, I say, shall he vaunt himself for this, when he hears or reads that Lucius Valerius, who died when he was holding the office of consul, was so poor that his funeral expenses were paid with money collected by the people?' or when he hears that quintius cincinnatus who possessing only four acres of land and cultivating them with his own hands was taken from the plough to be made dictator an office more honourable even than that of consul and that after having won great glory by conquering the enemy he preferred notwithstanding to continue in his poverty Or how shall he boast of having done a great thing, who has not been prevailed upon by the offer of any reward of this world, to renounce his connection with that heavenly and eternal country, when he hears that Fabricius could not be prevailed on to forsake the Roman city by the great gifts offered to him by Pyrrhus, king of the Iperots, who promised him the fourth part of his kingdom, but preferred to abide there in his poverty as a private individual?' For if, when their republic, that is, the interest of the people, the interest of the country, the common interest, was most prosperous and wealthy, they themselves were so poor in their own houses, that one of them, who had already been twice a consul, was expelled from that senate of poor men by the censor, because he was discovered to possess ten pounds weight of silver plate, since, I say, those very men by whose triumphs the public treasury was enriched were so poor, ought not all Christians, who make common property of their riches with a far nobler purpose, even that, according to what is written, written in the acts of the apostles, they may distribute to each one according to his need, and that no one may say that anything is his own, but that all things may be their common possession, ought they not to understand that they should not vaunt themselves, because they do that to obtain the society of angels, when those men did well nigh the same thing to preserve the glory of the Romans? how could these and whatever like things are found in the roman history have become so widely known and have been proclaimed by so great a fame had not the roman empire extending far and wide been raised to its greatness by magnificent successes Wherefore, through that empire, so extensive and of so long continuance, so illustrious and glorious also through the virtues of such great men, the reward which they sought was rendered to their earnest aspirations, and also examples are set before us, containing necessary admonition, in order that we may be stung with shame, if we shall see that we have not held fast those virtues for the sake of the most glorious city of God, which are, in whatever way, resembled by those virtues which they held fast for the sake of the glory of a terrestrial city, and that too if we shall feel conscious that we have held them fast we may not be lifted up with pride because as the apostle says the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us but so far as regards human and temporal glory the lives of these ancient romans were reckoned sufficiently worthy Therefore also we see, in the light of that truth which, veiled in the Old Testament, is revealed in the New, namely, that it is not in view of terrestrial and temporal benefits, which divine providence grants promiscuously to good and evil, that God is to be worshipped, but in view of eternal life, everlasting gifts, and of the society of the heavenly city itself. In the light of this truth we see that the Jews were most righteously given as a trophy to the glory of the Romans. For we see that these Romans, who rested on earthly glory, and sought to obtain it by virtue, such as they were, conquered those who, in their great depravity, slew and rejected the giver of true glory and of the eternal city. CHAPTER nineteen. There is assuredly a difference between the desire of human glory and the desire of domination. For though he who has an overweening delight in human glory will be also very prone to aspire earnestly after domination, nevertheless they who desire the true glory even of human praise strive not to displease those who judge well of them. For there are many good moral qualities, of which many are competent judges, although they are not possessed by many. And by those good moral qualities those men press on to glory, honour, and domination, of whom Sallust says, But they press on by the true way. But whosoever, without possessing that desire of glory which makes one fear to displease those who judge his conduct, desires domination and power, very often seeks to obtain what he loves by most open crimes. Therefore he who desires glory presses on to obtain it, either by the true way, or certainly by deceit and artifice, wishing to appear good when he is not. Therefore to him who possesses virtues it is a great virtue to despise glory, for contempt of it is seen by God, but is not manifest to human judgment. For whatever any one does before the eyes of men in order to show himself to be a despiser of glory, if they suspect that he is doing it in order to get greater praise, that is, greater glory, he has no means of demonstrating to the perceptions of those who suspect him that the case is really otherwise than they suspect it to be. But he who despises the judgment of praisers despises also the rashness of suspectors. Their salvation, indeed, he does not despise, if he is truly good. For so great is the righteousness of that man who receives his virtues from the Spirit of God, that he loves his very enemies, and so loves them that he desires that his haters and detractors may be turned to righteousness, and become his associates, and that not in an earthly, but in a heavenly country. But with respect to his praisers, though he sets little value on their praise, he does not set little value on their love. Neither does he elude their praise, lest he should forfeit their love. And therefore he strives earnestly to have their praises directed to him from whom every one receives whatever in him is truly praiseworthy. But he who is a despiser of glory, but is greedy of domination, exceeds the beasts in the vices of cruelty and luxuriousness such indeed were certain of the romans who wanting the love of esteem wanted not the thirst for domination and that there were many such history testifies but it was nero caesar who was the first to reach the summit and as it were the citadel of this vice for so great was his luxuriousness that one would have thought there was nothing manly to be dreaded in him and such his cruelty that had not the contrary been known no one would have thought there was anything effeminate in his character nevertheless power and domination are not given even to such men save by the providence of the most high god when he judges that the state of human affairs is worthy of such lords the divine utterance is clear on this matter for the wisdom of god thus speaks by me kings reign and tyrants possess the land But that it may not be thought that by tyrants is meant not wicked and impious kings, but brave men, in accordance with the ancient use of the word, as when Virgil says, For know that treaty may not stand, where king greets king, and joins not hand. In another place it is most unambiguously said of God, that he maketh the man who is an hypocrite to reign, on account of the perversity of the people wherefore though i have according to my ability shown for what reason god who alone is true and just helped forward the romans who were good according to a certain standard of an earthly state to the acquirement of the glory of so great an empire there may be nevertheless a more hidden cause known better to god than to us depending on the diversity of the merits of the human race Among all who are truly pious it is at all events agreed that no one without true piety, that is, true worship of the true God, can have true virtue, and that it is not true virtue which is the slave of human praise. Though, nevertheless, they who are called not citizens of the eternal city, which is called the city of God in the sacred scriptures, are more useful to the earthly city when they possess even that virtue than if they had not even that but there could be nothing more fortunate for human affairs than that by the mercy of god they who are endowed with true piety of life if they have the skill for ruling people should also have the power but such men however great virtues they may possess in this life attribute it solely to the grace of god that he has bestowed it on them willing believing seeking and at the same time they understand how far they are short of that perfection of righteousness which exists in the society of those holy angels for which they are striving to fit themselves. But however much that virtue may be praised and cried up, which without true piety is the slave of human glory, it is not at all to be compared even to the feeble beginnings of the virtue of the saints, whose hope is placed in the grace and mercy of the true God. CHAPTER twenty philosophers who place the end of human good in virtue itself in order to put to shame certain other philosophers who indeed approve of the virtues but measure them all with reference to the end of bodily pleasure and think that this pleasure is to be sought for its own sake but the virtues on account of pleasure are wont to paint a kind of word-picture on which pleasure sits like a luxurious queen on a royal seat and all the virtues are subjected to her as slaves watching her nod that they may do whatever she shall command she commands prudence to be ever on the watch to discover how pleasure may rule and be safe justice she orders to grant what benefit she can in order to secure those friendships which are necessary for bodily pleasure to do wrong to no one lest on account of the breaking of the laws pleasure be not able to live in security fortitude she orders to keep her mistress that is pleasure bravely in her mind if any affliction befall her body which does not occasion death in order that by remembrance of former delight she may mitigate the poignancy of present pain temperance she commands to take only a certain quantity even of the most favourite food, lest through immoderate use anything prove hurtful by disturbing the health of the body, and thus pleasure, which the Epicureans make to consist chiefly in the health of the body, be grievously offended. Thus the virtues, with the whole dignity of their glory, will be the slaves of pleasure as of some imperious and disreputable woman. There is nothing, say our philosophers, more disgraceful and monstrous than this picture, in which the eyes of good men can less endure." and they say the truth. But I do not think that the picture would be sufficiently becoming, even if it were made so, that the virtues should be represented as the slaves of human glory. For though that glory be not a luxurious woman, it is nevertheless puffed up, and has much vanity in it. Wherefore, it is unworthy of the solidity and firmness of the virtues to represent them as serving this glory, so that prudence shall provide nothing, justice distribute nothing, temperance moderate nothing, except to the end that men may be pleased, and vain glory served." nor will they be able to defend themselves from the charge of such baseness whilst they by way of being despisers of glory disregard the judgment of other men seem to themselves wise and please themselves for their virtue if indeed it is virtue at all is only in another way subjected to human praise for he who seeks to please himself seeks still to please man But he who, with true piety towards God, whom he loves, believes, and hopes in, fixes his attention more on those things in which he displeases himself, than on those things, if there are any such, which please himself, or rather not himself, but the truth, does not attribute that by which he can now please the truth to anything but to the mercy of him whom he has feared to displease, giving thanks for what in him is healed, and pouring out prayers for the healing of that which is yet unhealed. CHAPTER Twenty One these things being so we do not attribute the power of giving kingdoms and empires to any save to the true god who gives happiness in the kingdom of heaven to the pious alone but gives kingly power on earth both to the pious and the impious as it may please him whose good pleasure is always just for though we have said something about the principles which guide his administration in so far as it has seemed good to him to explain it nevertheless it is too much for us and far surpasses our strength to discuss the hidden things of men's hearts and by a clear examination to determine the merits of various kingdoms He, therefore, who is the one true God, who never leaves the human race without just judgment and help, gave a kingdom to the Romans when he would, and as great as he would, as he did also to the Assyrians, and even the Persians, by whom, as their own books testify, only two gods are worshipped, the one good and the other evil, to say nothing concerning the Hebrew people, of whom I have already spoken as much as seemed necessary, who, as long as they were a kingdom, worshipped none save the true God.' The same, therefore, who gave to the Persians harvests, though they did not worship the goddess Segesho, who gave the other blessings of the earth, though they did not worship the many gods which the Romans supposed to preside, each one over some particular thing, or even many of them over each several thing, he, I say, gave the Persians dominion, though they worshipped none of those gods to whom the Romans believed themselves indebted for the empire. And the same is true in respect of men as well as nations. He who gave power to Marius gave it also to Caius Caesar he who gave it to augustus gave it also to nero he also who gave it to the most benignant emperors the vespasians father and son gave it also to the cruel domitian and finally to avoid the necessity of going over them all he who gave it to the christian constantine gave it also to the apostate julian whose gifted mind was deceived by a sacrilegious and detestable curiosity stimulated by the love of power And it was because he was addicted through curiosity to vain oracles, that, confident of victory, he burned the ships which were laden with the provisions necessary for his army, and therefore, engaging with hot zeal and rashly audacious enterprises, he was soon slain, as the just consequence of his recklessness, and left his army unprovisioned in an enemy's country, and in such a predicament that it never could have escaped, save by altering the boundaries of the Roman Empire, in violation of that omen of the god Terminus, of which I spoke in the preceding book. For the god Terminus, yielded to necessity though he had not yielded to Jupiter manifestly these things are ruled and governed by the one God according as he pleases and if his motives are hid are they therefore unjust chapter twenty two thus also the durations of wars are determined by him as he may see meet according to his righteous will and pleasure and mercy to afflict or to console the human race so that they are sometimes of longer sometimes of shorter duration the War of the Pirates and the Third Punic War were terminated with incredible celerity. Also the War of the Fugitive Gladiators, though in it many Roman generals and the consuls were defeated, and Italy was terribly wasted and ravaged, was nevertheless ended in the third year, having itself been during its continuance the end of much. The Picentes, the Marci, and the Poligni, not distant but Italian nations, after a long and most loyal servitude under the Roman yoke, attempted to raise their heads into liberty though many nations had now been subjected to the roman power and carthage had been overthrown in this italian war the romans were very often defeated and two consuls perished besides other noble senators nevertheless this calamity was not protracted over a long space of time for the fifth year put an end to it But the second Punic war, lasting for the space of eighteen years, and occasioning the greatest disasters and calamities to the Republic, wore out and well-nigh consumed the strength of the Romans, for in two battles about seventy thousand Romans fell. The first Punic war was terminated after having been waged for three and twenty years. The Mithridatic war was waged for forty years and that no one may think that in the early and much-belauded times of the romans they were far braver and more able to bring wars to a speedy termination the samnite war was protracted for nearly fifty years and in this war the romans were so beaten that they were even put under the yoke but because they did not love glory for the sake of justice but seemed rather to have loved justice for the sake of glory they broke the peace and the treaty which had been concluded These things I mention because many, ignorant of past things, and some also dissimulating what they know, if in Christian times they see any war protracted a little longer than they expected, straightway make a fierce and insolent attack on our religion, exclaiming that but for it the deities would have been supplicated still, according to ancient rites, and then, by that bravery of the Romans which, with the help of Mars and Bologna, speedily brought to an end such great wars, this war also would be speedily terminated.' Let them, therefore, who have read history recollect what long-continued wars, having various issues and entailing woeful slaughter, were waged by the ancient Romans, in accordance with the general truth that the earth, like the tempestuous deep, is subject to agitations from tempests, tempests of such evils in various degrees, and let them sometimes confess what they do not like to own, and not, by madly speaking against God, destroy themselves and deceive the ignorant. CHAPTER twenty-three nevertheless they do not mention with thanksgiving what god has very recently and within our own memory wonderfully and mercifully done but as far as in them lies they attempt if possible to bury it in universal oblivion but should we be silent about these things we should be in like manner ungrateful When Radagasus, king of the Goths, having taken up his position very near to the city, where the vast and savage army was already close upon the Romans, he was in one day so speedily and so thoroughly beaten, that whilst not even one Roman was wounded, much less slain, far more than a hundred thousand of his army were prostrated, and he himself and his sons, having been captured, were forthwith put to death, suffering the punishment they deserved.' for had so impious a man with so great and so impious a host entered the city whom would he have spared what tombs of the martyrs would he have respected in his treatment of what person would he have manifested the fear of god whose blood would he have refrained from shedding whose chastity would he have wished to preserve inviolate But how loud would they not have been in the praises of their gods! How insultingly they would have boasted, saying that Radagasus had conquered, that he had been able to achieve such great things, because he propitiated and won over the gods by daily sacrifices, a thing which the Christian religion did not allow the Romans to do. For when he was approaching to those places where he was overwhelmed at the nod of the Supreme Majesty, as his fame was everywhere increasing, it was being told us at Carthage that the pagans were believing, publishing, and boasting, that he, on account of the help, and protection of the gods friendly to him, because of the sacrifices which he was said to be daily offering to them, would certainly not be conquered by those who were not performing such sacrifices to the Roman gods, and did not even permit that they should be offered by any one. And now these wretched men do not give thanks to God for his great mercy, who, having determined to chastise the corruption of men, which was worthy of far heavier chastisement than the corruption of the barbarians, tempered his indignation with such mildness as in the first instance to cause that the king of the Goths should be conquered in a wonderful manner, lest glory should accrue to demons, whom he was known to be supplicating, and thus the minds of the weak should be overthrown, and then, afterwards, to cause that when Rome was to be taken, it should be taken by those barbarians who contrary to any custom of all former wars protected through reverence for the christian religion those who fled for refuge to the sacred places and who so opposed the demons themselves and the rites of impious sacrifices that they seemed to be carrying on a far more terrible war with them than with men Thus did the true Lord and Governor of things both scourge the Romans mercifully, and, by the marvellous defeat of the worshippers of demons, show that those sacrifices were not necessary even for the safety of present things, so that by those who do not obstinately hold out, but prudently consider the matter, true religion may not be deserted on account of the urgencies of the present time, but may be more clung to in most confident expectation of eternal life. CHAPTER Twenty Four for neither do we say that certain christian emperors were therefore happy because they ruled a long time or dying a peaceful death left their sons to succeed them in the empire or subdued the enemies of the republic or were able both to guard against and to suppress the attempt of hostile citizens rising against them These, and other gifts or comforts of this sorrowful life, even certain worshippers of demons have merited to receive, who do not belong to the kingdom of God to which these belong. And this is to be traced to the mercy of God, who would not if those who believe in him desire such things as the highest good. But we say that they are happy if they rule justly, if they are not lifted up amid the praises of those who pay them sublime honours, and the obsequiousness of those who salute them with an excessive humility, but remember that they are men.' if they make their power the handmaid of his majesty by using it for the greatest possible extension of his worship if they fear love worship god if more than their own they love that kingdom in which they are not afraid to have partners if they are slow to punish ready to pardon if they apply that punishment as necessary to government and defence of the republic and not in order to gratify their own enmity if they grant pardon not that iniquity may go unpunished but with the hope that the transgressor may amend his ways if they compensate with a lenity of mercy and a liberality of benevolence for whatever severity they may be compelled to decree If their luxury is as much restrained as it might have been unrestrained, if they prefer to govern depraved desires rather than any nation whatever, and if they do all these things not through ardent desire of empty glory, but through love of eternal felicity, not neglecting to offer to the true God, who is their God, for their sins, the sacrifices of humility, contrition, and prayer. Such Christian emperors, we say, are happy in the present time by hope, and are destined to be so in the enjoyment of the reality itself, when that which we wait for shall have arrived. Chapter twenty five for the good God, lest men who believe that he is to be worshipped with a view to eternal life, should think that no one could attain to all this high estate, and to this terrestrial dominion, unless he should be a worshipper of the demons, supposing that these spirits have great power with respect to such things. For this reason he gave to the emperor Constantine, who was not a worshipper of demons, but of the true God himself, such fulness of earthly gifts as no one would even dare wish for. To him also he granted the honour of founding a city, a companion to the Roman Empire, the daughter, as it were, of Rome itself, but without any temple or image of the demons. He reigned for a long period as sole emperor, and unaided held and defended the whole Roman world. In conducting and carrying on wars he was most victorious, in overthrowing tyrants he was most successful. He died at a great age of sickness and old age, and left his sons to succeed him in the empire.' But again, lest any emperor should become a Christian in order to merit the happiness of a Constantine, when every one should be a Christian for the sake of eternal life, God took away Jovian far sooner than Julian, and permitted that Gratian should be slain by the sword of a tyrant. But in his case there was far more mitigation of the calamity than in the case of the great Pompey, for he could not be avenged by Cato, whom he had left, as it were, heir to the civil war. But Gratian, though pious minds require not such consolations, was avenged by Theodosius, whom he had associated with himself in the empire, though he had a little brother of his own, being more desirous of a faithful alliance than of extensive power. CHAPTER twenty-six. And on this account Theodosius not only preserved during the lifetime of Gratian that fidelity which was due to him, but also, after his death, he, like a true Christian, took his little brother Valentinian under his protection as joint emperor, after he had been expelled by Maximus, the murderer of his father. He guarded him with paternal affection, though he might without any difficulty have got rid of him, being entirely destitute of all resources, had he been animated with the desire of extensive empire, and not with the ambition of being a benefactor. It was therefore a far greater pleasure to him, when he had adopted the boy, and preserved to him his imperial dignity, to console him by his very humanity and kindness. "'Afterwards, when that success was rendering Maximus terrible, Theodosius, in the midst of his perplexing anxieties, was not drawn away to follow the suggestions of a sacrilegious and unlawful curiosity, but sent to John, whose abode was in the desert of Egypt, for he had learned that this servant of God, whose fame was spreading abroad, was endowed with the gift of prophecy, and from him he received assurance of victory.' immediately the slayer of the tyrant maximus with the deepest feelings of compassion and respect restored the boy valentinianus to his share in the empire from which he had been driven valentinianus being soon after slain by secret assassination or by some other plot or accident theodosius having again received a response from the prophet and placing entire confidence in it marched against the tyrant eugenius who had been unlawfully elected to succeed that emperor and defeated his very powerful army more by prayer than by the sword some soldiers who were at the battle reported to me that all the missiles they were throwing were snatched from their hands by a vehement wind which blew from the direction of theodosius's army upon the enemy nor did it only drive with greater velocity the darts which were hurled against them but also turned back upon their own bodies the darts which they themselves were throwing and therefore the poet claudian although an alien from the name of christ nevertheless says in his praises of him o prince too much beloved by god for thee Aeolus pours armed tempests from their caves for thee the air fights and the winds with one accord obey thy bugles but the victor as he had believed and predicted overthrew the statues of jupiter which had been as it were consecrated by i know not what kind of rites against him and set up in the alps And the thunderbolts of these statues, which were made of gold, he mirthfully and graciously presented to his couriers, who, as the joy of the occasion permitted, were jocularly saying that they would be most happy to be struck by such thunderbolts. The sons of his own enemies, whose fathers had been slain not so much by his orders as by the vehemence of war, having fled for refuge to a church, though they were not yet Christians, he was anxious, taking advantage of the occasion, to bring over to Christianity, and treated them with Christian love nor did he deprive them of their property but besides allowing them to retain it bestowed on them additional honours he did not permit private animosities to affect the treatment of any man after the war he was not like cinna and marius and sylla and other such men who wished not to finish civil wars even when they were finished but rather grieved that they had arisen at all than wished that when they were finished they should harm any one Amid all these events, from the very commencement of his reign, he did not cease to help the troubled church against the impious, by most just and merciful laws, which the heretical Valens, favouring the Arians, had vehemently afflicted. Indeed, he rejoiced more to be a member of this church than he did to be a king upon the earth. The idols of the Gentiles he everywhere ordered to be overthrown, understanding well that not even terrestrial gifts are placed in the power of demons, but in that of the true God and what could be more admirable than his religious humility when compelled by the urgency of certain of his intimates he avenged with the grievous crime of the thessalonians which at the prayer of the bishops he had promised to pardon and being laid hold of by the discipline of the church did penance in such a way that the sight of his imperial loftiness prostrated made the people who were interceding for him weep more than the consciousness of offence had made them fear what it when enraged These and other similar good works, which it would be long to tell, he carried with him from this world of time, where the greatest human nobility and loftiness are but vapour. Of these works the reward is eternal happiness, of which God is the giver, though only to those who are sincerely pious. But all other blessings and privileges of this life, as the world itself, light, air, earth, water, fruits, and the soul of man himself, his body, senses, mind, life, he lavishes on good and bad alike. And among these blessings is also to be reckoned the possession of an empire, whose extent he regulates according to the requirements of his providential government at various times. Whence, I see, we must now answer those who, being confuted and convicted by the most manifest proofs by which it is shown that for obtaining these terrestrial things, which are all the foolish desire to have, that multitude of false gods is of no use, attempt to assert that the gods are to be worshipped with a view to the interest, not of the present life, but of that which is to come after death. For as to those who, for the sake of the friendship of this world, are willing to worship vanities, and do not grieve that they are left to their puerile understandings, I think they have been sufficiently answered in these five books, of which books, when I had published the first three, and they had begun to come into the hands of many, I heard that certain persons were preparing against them an answer of some kind or other in writing. Then it was told me that they had already written their answer, but were waiting a time when they could publish it without danger such persons i would advise not to desire what cannot be of any advantage to them for it is very easy for a man to seem to himself to have answered arguments when he has only been unwilling to be silent for what is more loquacious than vanity and though it be able if it like to shout more loudly than the truth it is not for all that more powerful than the truth But let men consider diligently all the things that we have said, and if perchance, judging without party spirit, they shall clearly perceive that they are such things as may rather be shaken than torn up by their most impudent garrulity, and, as it were, satirical and mimic levity, let them restrain their absurdities, and let them choose rather to be corrected by the wise than to be lauded by the foolish. For if they are waiting an opportunity not for liberty to speak the truth but for license to revile, may not that befall them, which Tully says concerning some one o oh, wretched man, who was at liberty to sin wherefore whoever he be who deems himself happy because of license to revile he would be far happier if that were not allowed him at all for he might all the while laying aside empty boast be contradicting those to whose views he is opposed by way of free consultation with them and be listening as it becomes him honorably gravely candidly to all that can be adduced by those whom he consults by friendly disposition end of book 5 chapters 13 through 26 recording by darren l slider fort worth texas www.logoslibrary.org book 6 preface and chapters 1 through 6 of the city of god this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by darren l slider the city of god by saint augustine of hippo Book 6. PREFACE. In the five former books I think I have sufficiently disputed against those who believe that the many false gods, which the Christian truth shows to be useless images, or unclean spirits and pernicious demons, or certainly creatures, not the Creator, are to be worshipped for the advantage of this mortal life, and of terrestrial affairs with that right and service which the Greeks call Latreia, and which is due to the one true God. And who does not know that, in the face of excessive stupidity and obstinacy, neither these five, nor any other number of books whatsoever, could be enough, when it is esteemed the glory of vanity to yield to no amount of strength on the sight of truth, certainly to his destruction over whom so heinous a vice tyrannises. For, notwithstanding all the assiduity of the physician who attempts to effect a cure, the disease remains unconquered, not through any fault of his, but because of the incurableness of the sick man. But those who thoroughly weigh the things which they read, having understood and considered them, without any, or with no great and excessive degree of that obstinacy which belongs to a long-cherished error, will more readily judge that in the five books already finished we have done more than the necessity of the question demanded, than that we have given it less discussion than it required. And they cannot have doubted but that all the hatred which the ignorant attempt to bring upon the Christian religion on account of the disasters of this life, and the destruction and change which befall terrestrial things, whilst the learned do not merely dissimulate, but encourage that hatred, contrary to their own consciences, being possessed by a mad impiety. They cannot have doubted, I say, but that this hatred is devoid of right reflection and reason, and full of most light temerity and most pernicious animosity. Chapter 1. Now, as in the next place, as the promised order demands, those are to be refuted and taught, who contend that the gods of the nations which the Christian truth destroys are to be worshipped not on account of this life, but on account of that which is to be after death, I shall do well to commence my disputation with the truthful oracle of the holy psalm, Blessed is the man whose hope is in the Lord God, and who respecteth not vanities and lying follies." Nevertheless, in all vanities and lying follies the philosophers are to be listened to with far more toleration who have repudiated those opinions and errors of the people, for the people set up images to the deities, and either feigned concerning those whom they call immortal gods many false and unworthy things, or believed them, already feigned, and, when believed, mixed them up with their worship and sacred rites with those men who though not by free avowal of their convictions do still testify that they disapprove of those things by their muttering disapprobation during disputations on the subject it may not be very far amiss to discuss the following question whether for the sake of the life which is to be after death we ought to worship not the one god who made all creatures spiritual and corporeal but those many gods who as some of these philosophers hold were made by that one god and placed by him in their respective sublime spheres and are therefore considered more excellent and more noble than all the others But who will assert that it must be affirmed and contended that those gods, certain of whom I have mentioned in the fourth book, to whom are distributed each to each the charges of minute things, do bestow eternal life? but will those most skilled and most acute men who glory in having written for the great benefit of men to teach on what account each god is to be worshipped and what is to be sought from each lest with most disgraceful absurdity such as a mimic is wont for the sake of merriment to exhibit water should be sought from liber wine from the lymphs will those men indeed affirm to any man supplicating the immortal gods that when he shall have asked wine from the lymphs and they shall have answered him We have water, we seek wine from Lieber. He may rightly say, If ye have not wine, at least give me eternal life. What more monstrous than this absurdity? Will not these lymphs, for they are wont to be very easily made laugh, laughing loudly, if they do not attempt to deceive like demons, answer the suppliant, O man, dost thou think that we have life, Vitam, in our power, when thou who hearest have not even the vine, Vitam? It is therefore most impudent folly to seek and hope for eternal life from such gods as are asserted so to preside over the separate minute concernments of this most sorrowful and short life, and whatever is useful for supporting and propping it, as that if anything which is under the care and power of one be sought from another, it is so incongruous and absurd that it appears very like to mimic drollery which when it is done by mimics knowing what they are doing is deservedly laughed at in the theatre but when it is done by foolish persons who do not know better is more deservedly ridiculed in the world Wherefore, as concerns those gods which the states have established, it has been cleverly invented and handed down to memory by learned men what god or goddess is to be supplicated in relation to every particular thing, what, for instance, is to be sought from Lieber, what from the Lymphs, what from Vulcan, and so of all the rest, some of whom I have mentioned in the fourth book, and some I have thought right to omit. Further, if it is an error to seek wine from Ceres, bread from Liber, water from Vulcan, fire from the Limps, how much greater absurdity ought it to be thought if supplication be made to any one of these for eternal life? Wherefore, if, when we were inquiring what gods or goddesses are to be believed to be able to confer earthly kingdoms upon men, all things having been discussed, it was shown to be very far from the truth to think that even terrestrial kingdoms are established by any of those many false deities, is it not most insane impiety to believe that eternal life, which is without any doubt or comparison to be preferred to all terrestrial kingdoms, can be given to any one by any of these gods?' For the reason why such gods seem to us not to be able to give even an earthly kingdom, was not because they are very great and exalted, whilst that is something small and abject, which they, in their so great sublimity, would not condescend to care for, but because, however deservedly any one may, in consideration of human frailty, despise the falling pinnacles of an earthly kingdom, these gods have presented such an appearance as to seem most unworthy to have the granting and preserving of even those entrusted to them. And consequently, if, as we have taught in the two last books of our work, where this matter is treated of, no god out of all that crowd, either belonging to, as it were, the plebeian or to the noble gods, is fit to give mortal kingdoms to mortals, how much less is he able to make immortals of mortals?' And more than this, if, according to the opinion of those with whom we are now arguing, the gods are to be worshipped not on account of the present life, but of that which is to be after death, then certainly they are not to be worshipped on account of those particular things which are distributed and portioned out, not by any law of rational truth, but by mere vain conjecture, to the power of such gods, as they believe they ought to be worshipped, who contend that their worship is necessary for all the desirable things of this mortal life, against whom I have disputed sufficiently, as far as I was able, in the five preceding books. These things being so, if the age itself of those who worshipped the goddess Juventas should be characterized by remarkable vigour, whilst her despisers should either die within the years of youth, or should, during that period, grow cold as with the torpor of old age, if bearded Fortuna should cover the cheeks of her worshippers more handsomely and more gracefully than all others, whilst we should see those by whom she was despised either altogether beardless or ill-bearded, even then we should most rightly say that thus far these several gods had power, limited in some way by their functions, and that consequently neither ought eternal life to be sought from Juventus, who could not give a beard, nor ought any good thing after this life to be expected from Fortuna Barbata, who has no power even in this life to give the age itself at which the beard grows. But now, when their worship is necessary not even on account of those very things which they think are subjected to their power, For many worshippers of the goddess Juventus have not been at all vigorous at that age, and many who do not worship her rejoice in youthful strength, and also many suppliants of Fortuna Barbata have either not been able to attain to any beard at all, not even an ugly one, although they who adore her in order to obtain a beard are ridiculed by her bearded despisers, is the human heart really so foolish as to believe that that worship of the gods, which it acknowledges to be vain and ridiculous with respect to those very temporal and swiftly passing gifts, over each of which, one of these gods is said to preside, is fruitful in results with respect to eternal life. And that they are able to give eternal life has not been affirmed even by those who, that they might be worshipped by the silly populace, distributed in minute division among them these temporal occupations, that none of them might sit idle, for they had supposed the existence of an exceedingly great number. CHAPTER two. Who has investigated those things more carefully than Marcus Varro? Who has discovered them more learnedly? Who has considered them more attentively? Who has distinguished them more acutely? Who has written about them more diligently and more fully? Who, though he is less pleasing in his eloquence, is nevertheless so full of instruction and wisdom, that in all the erudition which we call secular, but they liberal, he will teach the student of things as much as Cicero delights the student of words?' And even Tully himself renders him such testimony as to say in his academic books that he had held that disputation, which is there carried on with Marcus Varro, a man, he adds, unquestionably the acutest of all men, and without any doubt the most learned. He does not say the most eloquent or the most fluent, for in reality he was very deficient in this faculty, but he says of all men the most acute. And in those books, that is, the academic, where he contends that all things are to be doubted, he adds of him, without any doubt, the most learned. In truth he was so certain concerning this thing that he laid aside that doubt which he is wont to have recourse to in all things, as if, when about to dispute in favour of the doubt of the academics, he had, with respect to this one thing, forgotten that he was an academic. But in the first book, when he extols the literary works of the same Varro, he says, Us straying and wandering in our own city like strangers, thy books, as it were, brought home, that at length we might come to know of who we were and where we were. THOU HAST OPENED UP TO US THE AGE OF THE COUNTRY, THE DISTRIBUTION OF SEASONS, THE LAW OF SACRED THINGS, AND OF THE PRIESTS. THOU HAST OPENED UP TO US DOMESTIC AND PUBLIC DISCIPLINE. THOU HAST POINTED OUT TO US THE PROPER PLACES FOR RELIGIOUS CEREMONIES, AND HAST INFORMED US CONCERNING SACRED PLACES. THOU HAST SHOWN US THE NAMES, KINDS, OFFICES, CAUSES OF ALL DIVINE AND HUMAN THINGS this man then of so distinguished and excellent acquirements and as terentian briefly says of him in a most elegant verse varro a man universally informed who read so much that we wonder when he had time to write wrote so much that we can scarcely believe any one could have read it all this man i say so great in talent so great in learning had he had been an opposer and a destroyer of the so-called divine things of which he wrote, and had he said that they were pertained to superstition rather than to religion, might perhaps even in that case not have written so many things which are ridiculous, contemptible, detestable. But when he so worshipped these same gods, and so vindicated their worship, as to say in that same literary work of his, that he was afraid lest they should perish, not by an assault of enemies, but by the negligence of the citizens, and that from this ignominy they are being delivered by him, and are being laid up and preserved in the memory of the good by means of such books, with a zeal far more beneficial than that through which Metellus is declared to have rescued the sacred things of Vesta from the flames, and Aeneas to have rescued the Penates from the burning of Troy, and when he, nevertheless gives forth such things to be read by succeeding ages as are deservedly judged by wise and unwise to be unfit to be read, and to be most hostile to the truth of religion. What ought we to think but that a most acute and learned man, not, however, made free by the Holy Spirit, was overpowered by the custom and laws of his state, and not being able to be silent about those things by which he was influenced, spoke of them under pretense of commending religion? CHAPTER three. He wrote forty-one books of antiquities. These he divided into human and divine things. Twenty-five he devoted to human things, sixteen to divine things, following this plan in that division, namely to give six books to each of the four divisions of human things. For he directs his attention to these considerations, who perform, where they perform, when they perform, what they perform therefore in the first six books he wrote concerning men in the second six concerning places in the third six concerning times in the fourth and last six concerning things four times six however make only twenty-four but he placed at the head of them one separate work which spoke of all these things conjointly in divine things the same order he preserved throughout as far as concerns those things which are performed to the gods for sacred things are performed by men in places and times these four things i have mentioned he embraced in twelve books allotting three to each for he wrote the first three concerning men the following three concerning places the third three concerning times and the fourth three concerning sacred rites showing who should perform, where they should perform, when they should perform, what they should perform, with most subtle distinction. But because it was necessary to say, and that especially was expected, to whom they should perform sacred rites, he wrote concerning the gods themselves the last three books, and these five times three made fifteen. But they are in all, as we have said, sixteen. For he put also at the beginning of these one distinct book, speaking by way of introduction of all which follows, which, being finished, he proceeded to subdivide the first three in that fivefold distribution which pertained to men, making the first concerning high priests, the second concerning augurs, the third concerning the fifteen men presiding over the sacred ceremonies. The second three he made concerning places, speaking in one of them concerning their chapels, in the second concerning their temples, and in the third concerning religious places. The next three, which follow these, and pertain to times, that is, to festival days, he distributed so as to make one concerning holidays, the other concerning the circus games, and the third concerning scenic plays. Of the fourth three, pertaining to sacred things, he devoted one to consecrations, another to private, the last to public, sacred rites. In the three which remain, the gods themselves follow this pompous train, as it were, for whom all this culture has been expended. In the first book are the certain gods, in the second the uncertain, in the third, and last of all the chief and select gods. CHAPTER four. In this whole series of most beautiful and most subtle distributions and distinctions, it will most easily appear evident from the things we have said already, and from what is to be said hereafter, to any man who is not, in the obstinacy of his heart, an enemy to himself, that it is vain to seek and to hope for, and even most impudent, to wish for eternal life. For these institutions are either the work of men or of demons, not of those whom they call good demons, but to speak more plainly of unclean and without controversy malign spirits, who with wonderful slyness and secretness suggest to the thoughts of the impious, and sometimes openly present to their understandings noxious opinions, by which the human mind grows more and more foolish, and becomes unable to adapt itself to, and abide in, the immutable and eternal truth, and seek to confirm these opinions by every kind of fallacious attestation in their power. This very same Varro testifies that he wrote first concerning human things, but afterwards concerning divine things, because the states existed first, and afterward these things were instituted by them. But the true religion was not instituted by any earthly state, but plainly it established the celestial city. It, however, is inspired and taught by the true God, the giver of eternal life to his true worshippers." the following is the reason varro gives when he confesses that he had written first concerning human things and afterwards of divine things because these divine things were instituted by men as the painter is before the painted tablet the mason before the edifice so states are before those things which are instituted by states But he says that he would have written first concerning the gods, afterwards concerning men, if he had been writing concerning the whole nature of the gods, as if he were really writing concerning some portion of, and not all, the nature of the gods, or as if, indeed, some portion of, though not all, the nature of the gods ought not to be put before that of men. How, then, comes it that in those three last books, when he is diligently explaining the certain, uncertain, and select gods, he seems to pass over no portion of the nature of the gods? Why, then, does he say, if we had been writing on the whole nature of the gods, we would first have finished the divine things before we touched the human? For he either writes concerning the whole nature of the gods, or concerning some portion of it, or concerning no part of it at all. If concerning it all, it is certainly to be put before human things. If concerning some part of it, why should it not, from the very nature of the case, precede human things? Is not even some part of the gods to be preferred to the whole of humanity?' but if it is too much to prefer a part of the divine to all human things that part is certainly worthy to be preferred to the romans at least for he writes the books concerning human things not with reference to the whole world but only to rome which books he says he had properly placed in the order of writing before the books on divine things like a painter before the painted tablet or a mason before the building most openly confessing that as a picture or a structure even these divine things were instituted by men there remains only the third supposition that he is to be understood to have written concerning no divine nature but that he did not wish to say this openly but left it to the intelligent to infer for when one says not all usage understands that to mean some but it may be understood as meaning none because that which is none is neither all nor some in fact as he himself says if he had been writing concerning all the nature of the gods its due place would have been before human things in the order of writing but as the truth declares even though varro is silent the divine nature should have taken precedence of roman things though it were not all but only some but it is properly put after therefore it is none his arrangement therefore was due not to a desire to give human things priority to divine things but to his unwillingness to prefer false things to true for in what he wrote on human things he followed the history of affairs but in what he wrote concerning those things which they call divine what else did he follow but mere conjectures about vain things this doubtless is what in a subtle manner he wished to signify not only writing concerning divine things after the human, but even giving a reason why he did so. For if he had suppressed this, some, perchance, would have defended his doing so in one way, and some in another. But in that very reason he has rendered, he has left nothing for men to conjecture at will, and it is sufficiently proved that he preferred men to the institutions of men, not the nature of men to the nature of the gods.' Thus he confessed that in the writing the books concerning divine things he did not write concerning the truth which belongs to nature, but the falseness which belongs to error, which he has elsewhere expressed more openly, as I have mentioned in the fourth book, saying that had he been founding a new city himself, he would have written according to the order of nature, but as he had found only an old one, he could not but follow its custom. CHAPTER five. Now, what are we to say of this proposition of his, namely, that there are three kinds of theology, that is, of the account which is given of the gods, and of these the one is called mythical, the other physical, and the third civil? Did the Latin usage permit, we should call the kind which he has placed first in order fabular? But let us call it fabulous, for mythical is derived from the Greek mythos, a fable. But that the second should be called natural, the usage of speech now admits. The third, he himself, is designated in Latin, calling it Civil then he says they call that kind mythical which the poets chiefly use physical that which the philosophers use civil that which the people use as to the first i have mentioned says he in it are many fictions which are contrary to the dignity and nature of the immortals for we find in it that one god has been born from the head another from the thigh another from drops of blood also in this we find that gods have stolen committed adultery served men in a word in this all manner of things are attributed to the gods such as may befall not merely any man but even the most contemptible man He certainly, where he could, where he dared, where he thought he could do it with impunity, has manifested, without any of the haziness of ambiguity, how great injury was done to the nature of the gods by lying fables. For he was speaking not concerning natural theology, not concerning civil, but concerning fabulous theology, which he thought he could freely find fault with. Let us see now what he says concerning the second kind. The second kind which I have explained, he says, is that concerning which philosophers have left many books, in which they treat such questions as these, what gods there are, where they are, of what kind and character they are, since what time they have existed, or if they have existed from eternity, whether they are of fire, as Heraclitus believes, or of number, as Pythagoras, or of atoms, as Epicurus says, and other such things which men's ears can more easily hear inside the walls of a school than outside in the forum he finds fault with nothing in this kind of theology which they call physical and which belongs to philosophers except that he has related their controversies among themselves through which there has arisen a multitude of dissentient sects nevertheless he has removed this kind from the forum that is from the populace but he has shut it up in schools but that first kind most false and most base he has not removed from the citizens Oh, the religious ears of the people and among them even those of the romans that are not able to bear what the philosophers dispute concerning the gods but when the poets sing and stage-players act such things as are derogatory to the dignity and nature of the immortals such as may befall not a man merely but the most contemptible man they not only bear but willingly listen to nor is this all, but they even consider that these things please the gods, and that they are propitiated by them. But someone may say, let us distinguish these two kinds of theology, the mythical and the physical, that is, the fabulous and the natural, from this civil kind about which we are now speaking. Anticipating this, he himself has distinguished them. Let us see now how he explains the civil theology itself. I see, indeed, why it should be distinguished as fabulous, even because it is false, because it is base, because it is unworthy. But to wish to distinguish the natural from the civil, what else is that but to confess that the civil itself is false? For if that be natural, what fault has it that it should be excluded? And if this which is called civil be not natural, what merit has it that it should be admitted? This in truth is the cause why he wrote first concerning human things, and afterwards concerning divine things, since in divine things he did not follow nature, but the institution of men. Let us look at this civil theology of his. The third kind, says he, is that which citizens in cities, and especially the priests, ought to know and to administer. From it is to be known what god each one may suitably worship, what sacred rites and sacrifices each one may suitably perform. Let us still attend to what follows. The first theology, he says, is especially adapted to the theatre, the second to the world, the third to the city. Who does not see to which he gives the palm? Certainly to the second, which he said above, is that of the philosophers. For he testifies that this pertains to the world, than which they think there is nothing better. But those two theologies, the first and the third, to wit, those of the theatre and of the city, has he distinguished them, or united them? for although we see that the city is in the world we do not see that it follows that any things belonging to the city pertain to the world for it is possible that such things may be worshipped and believed in the city according to false opinions as have no existence either in the world or out of it but where is the theatre but in the city who instituted the theatre but the state for what purpose did it constitute it but for scenic plays and to what class of things do scenic plays belong but to those divine things concerning which these books of varro's are written with so much ability chapter six o marcus varro thou art the most acute and without doubt the most learned but still a man not god now lifted up by the Spirit of God, to see and to announce divine things, thou seest indeed that divine things are to be separated from human trifles and lies. But thou fearest to offend those most corrupt opinions of the populace, and their customs and public superstitions, which thou thyself, when thou considerest them on all sides, perceivest, and all your literature loudly pronounces to be abhorrent from the nature of the gods, even of such gods as the frailty of the human mind supposes to exist in the elements of this world. What can the most excellent human talent do here? What can human learning though manifold avail thee in this perplexity? Thou desirest to worship the natural gods, thou art compelled to worship the civil. Thou hast found some of the gods to be fabulous, on whom thou vomitest forth very freely what thou thinkest, and whether thou willest or not, thou wettest therewith even the civil gods. Thou sayest forsooth that the fabulous are adapted to the theatre, the natural to the world, and the civil to the city, though the world is a divine work, but cities and theatres are the works of men, and though the gods who are laughed at in the theatre are not other than those who are adored in the temples and ye do not exhibit games in honour of other gods than those to whom ye immolate victims. How much more freely and more subtly wouldst thou have decided these, hadst thou said that some gods are natural, others established by men? And concerning those who have been so established, the literature of the poets gives one account, and that of the priests another, both of which are nevertheless so friendly the one to the other, through fellowship and falsehood, that they are both pleasing to the demons, to whom the doctrine of the truth is hostile. That theology, therefore, which they call natural, being put aside for a moment, as it is afterwards to be discussed, we may ask if any one is really content to seek a hope for eternal life from poetical, theatrical, scenic gods. Perish the thought! The true God averts so wild and sacrilegious a madness. What, is eternal life to be asked from those gods whom these things pleased, and whom these things propitiate, in which their own crimes are represented?' no one as i think has arrived at such a pitch of headlong and furious impiety so then neither by the fabulous nor by the civil theology does any one obtain eternal life for the one sows base things concerning the gods by feigning them the other reaps by cherishing them the one scatters lies, the other gathers them together, the one pursues divine things with false crimes, the other incorporates among divine things the plays which are made up of these crimes, the one sounds abroad in human songs, impious fictions concerning the gods, the other consecrates these for the festivities of the gods themselves, the one sings the misdeeds and crimes of the gods, the other loves them, the one gives forth or feigns, the other either attests the true or delights in the false, both are base, both are damnable. But the one which is theatrical teaches public abomination, and that one which is of the city adorns itself with that abomination. Shall eternal life be hoped for from these by which this short and temporal life is polluted? Does the society of wicked men pollute our life, if they insinuate themselves into our affections, and win our assent? And does not the society of demons pollute the life who are worshipped with their own crimes? If with true crimes, how wicked the demons, if with false, how wicked the worship." When we say these things, it may perchance seem to someone who is very ignorant of these matters, that only those things concerning the gods which are sung in the songs of the poets, and acted on the stage, are unworthy of the divine majesty, and ridiculous, and too detestable to be celebrated, whilst those sacred things which not stage-players but priests perform are pure and free from all unseemliness. Had this been so, never would any one have thought that these theatrical abominations should be celebrated in their honour, never would the gods themselves have ordered them to be performed to them. But men are in no wise ashamed to perform these things in the theatres, because similar things are carried on in the temples. In short, when the forementioned author attempted to distinguish the civil theology from the fabulous and natural, as a sort of third and distinct kind, he wished it to be understood to be rather tempered by both than separated from either. For he says that those things which the poets write are less than the people ought to follow, whilst what the philosophers say is more than it is expedient for the people to pry into which says he differ in such a way that nevertheless not a few things from both of them have been taken to the account of the civil theology wherefore we will indicate what the civil theology has in common with that of the poet though it ought to be more closely connected with the theology of philosophers civil theology is therefore not quite disconnected from that of the poets nevertheless in another place concerning the generations of the gods he says that the people are more inclined toward the poets than toward the physical theologists for in this place he said what ought to be done in that other place what was really done He said that the latter had written for the sake of utility, but the poets for the sake of amusement. And hence the things from the poets' writings, which the people ought not to follow, are the crimes of the gods, which nevertheless amuse both the people and the gods. For for amusement's sake, he says, the poets write, and not for that of utility. Nevertheless they write such things as the gods will desire, and the people perform. End of Book Six, Preface, and Chapters One through Six Recording by Darren L. Slider, Fort Worth, Texas. www.logoslibrary.org. Book six, chapters seven through twelve of the City of God. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer? Please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Darren L. Slider. www.logoslibrary.org the city of god by st augustine of hippo book six chapter seven that theology therefore which is fabulous theatrical scenic and full of all baseness and unseemliness is taken up into the civil theology and part of that theology which in its totality is deservedly judged to be worthy of reprobation and rejection is pronounced worthy to be cultivated and observed not at all an incongruous part, as I have undertaken to show, and one which, being alien to the whole body, was unsuitably attached to and suspended from it, but a part entirely congruous with, and most harmoniously fitted to the rest, as a member of the same body. For what else do those images, forms, ages, sexes, characteristics of the gods show? If the poets have Jupiter with a beard, and Mercury beardless, have not the priests the same?' Is the Priapus of the priests less obscene than the Priapus of the players? Does he receive the adoration of worshippers in a different form from that in which he moves about the stage for the amusement of spectators? Is not Saturn old, and Apollo young, in the shrines where their images stand, as well as when represented by actors' masks? Why are Forculus, who presides over doors, and Limantinus, who presides over thresholds and lintels, male gods, and Cardea, between them feminine, who presides over hinges? Are not those things found in books on divine things which grave poets have deemed unworthy of their verses? Does the Diana of the theatre carry arms, whilst the Diana of the city is simply a virgin? Is the stage Apollo a lyrist, but the Delphic Apollo ignorant of this art? But these things are decent compared with the more shameful things. What was thought of Jupiter himself by those who placed his wet-nurse in the capital? Did they not bear witness to Euhemerus, who, not with the garrulity of a fable-teller, but with the gravity of an historian who had diligently investigated the matter, wrote that all such gods had been men and mortals? And they who appointed the Apulines as parasites at the table of Jupiter, what else did they wish for but mimic sacred rites? For if any mimic had said that the parasites of Jupiter were made use of at his table, he would assuredly have appeared to be seeking to call forth laughter. Varro said it, not when he was mocking, but when he was commending the gods, did he say it. His books on divine, not on human things, testify that he wrote this, not where he set forth the scenic games, but where he explained the Capitoline laws. In a word, he is conquered, and confesses that as they made the gods with a human form, so they believe that they are delighted with human pleasures. For also malign spirits were not so wanting to their own business as not to confirm noxious opinions in the minds of men by converting them into sport whence also is that story about the sacristan of hercules which says that having nothing to do he took to playing at dice as a pastime throwing them alternately with the one hand for hercules with the other for himself with this understanding that if he should win he should from the funds of the temple prepare himself a supper and hire a mistress but if hercules should win the game he himself should at his own expense provide the same for the pleasure of hercules then, when he had been beaten by himself, as though by Hercules, he gave to the god Hercules the supper he owed him, and also the most noble harlot, Larentina. But she, having fallen asleep in the temple, dreamed that Hercules had had intercourse with her, and had said to her that she would find her payment with the youth, whom she should first meet on leaving the temple, and that she was to believe this to be paid to her by Hercules. And so the first youth that met her on going out was the wealthy Tarucius, who kept her a long time, and when he died left her his heir she having obtained a most ample fortune that she should not seem ungrateful for the divine hire in her turn made the roman people her heir which she thought to be most acceptable to the deities and having disappeared the will was found by which meritorious conduct they say that she gained divine honours Now, had these things been feigned by the poets, and acted by the mimics, they would without any doubt have been said to pertain to the fabulous theology, and would have been judged worthy to be separated from the dignity of the civil theology. But when these shameful things, not of the poets, but of the people, not of the mimics, but of the sacred things, not of the theatres, but of the temples, that is, not of the fabulous, but of the civil theology, are reported by so great an author, not in vain do the actors represent with theatrical art the baseness of the gods which is so great but surely in vain do the priests attempt by rites called sacred to represent their nobleness of character which has no existence there are sacred rites of juno and these are celebrated in her beloved island samos where she was given in marriage to jupiter there are sacred rites of ceres in which proserpine is sought for having been carried off by pluto there are sacred rites of venus in which her beloved adonis being slain by a boar's tooth the lovely youth is lamented there are sacred rites of the mother of the gods in which the beautiful youth Attis, loved by her and castrated by her through a woman's jealousy is deplored by men who have suffered the like calamity whom they call Gali since then these things are more unseemly than all scenic abomination why is it that they strive to separate as it were the fabulous fictions of the poet concerning the gods as forsooth pertaining to the theatre from the civil theology which they wish to belong to the city as though they were separating from noble and worthy things things unworthy and base Wherefore, there is more reason to thank the stage-actors, who have spared the eyes of men, and have not laid bare by theatrical exhibition all the things which are hid by the walls of the temples. What good is to be thought of their sacred rites which are concealed in darkness, when those which are brought forth into the light are so detestable? And certainly they themselves have seen what they transact in secret through the agency of mutilated and effeminate men. Yet they have not been able to conceal those same men miserably and vile, enervated, and corrupted. Let them persuade whom they can, that they transact anything holy through such men, who they cannot deny are numbered, and live among their sacred things. We know not what they transact, but we know through whom they transact, for we know what things are transacted on the stage, where never, even in a chorus of harlots, hath one who is mutilated or an effeminate appeared. And nevertheless even these things are acted by vile and infamous characters, for indeed they ought not to be acted by men of good character.' What then are those sacred rites for the performance of which holiness has chosen such men as not even the obscenity of the stage has admitted? chapter eight. But all these things, they say, have certain physical, that is, natural interpretations, showing their natural meaning, as though in this disputation we were seeking physics and not theology, which is the account not of nature but of God for although he who is the true god is god not by opinion but by nature nevertheless all nature is not god for there is certainly a nature of man of a beast of a tree of a stone none of which is god for if when the question is concerning the mother of the gods that from which the whole system of interpretation starts certainly is that the mother of the gods is the earth why do we make further inquiry why do we carry our investigation through all the rest of it what can more manifestly favour them who say that all those gods were men for they are earth-born in the sense that the earth is their mother. But in the true theology the earth is the work, not the mother, of God. But in whatever way their sacred rites may be interpreted, in whatever reference they may have to the nature of things, it is not according to nature, but contrary to nature, that men should be effeminates. This disease, this crime, this abomination, has a recognised place among those sacred things, though even depraved men will scarcely be compelled by torments to confess that they are guilty of it. Again, if these sacred rites, which are proved to be fouler than scenic abominations, are excused and justified, on the ground that they have their own interpretations, by which they are shown to symbolize the nature of things, why are not the poetical things in like manner excused and justified? For many have interpreted even these in like fashion, to such a degree, that even that which they say is the most monstrous and most horrible, namely that Saturn devoured his own children, has been interpreted by some of them to mean that length of time, which is signified by the name of Saturn— consumes whatever it begets or that as the same varro thinks saturn belongs to seeds which fall back again into the earth from whence they spring and so one interprets it in one way and one in another and the same is to be said of all the rest of this theology And nevertheless it is called the fabulous theology, and is censored, cast off, rejected, together with all such interpretations belonging to it. And not only by the natural theology, which is that of the philosophers, but also by this civil theology, concerning which we are speaking, which is asserted to pertain to cities and peoples, it is judged worthy of repudiation, because it has invented unworthy things concerning the gods.' Of which I wot, this is the secret, that those most acute and learned men, by whom those things were written, understood that both theologies ought to be rejected, to wit both that fabulous and this civil one, but the former they dared to reject, the latter they dared not, the former they set forth to be censured, the latter they showed to be very like it, not that it might be chosen to be held in preference to the other, but that it might be understood to be worthy of being rejected together with it and thus without danger to those who feared to censure the civil theology both of them being brought into contempt that theology which they call natural might find a place in better disposed minds for the civil and the fabulous are both fabulous and both civil he who shall wisely inspect the vanities and obscenities of both will find that they are both fabulous and he who shall direct his attention to the scenic plays pertaining to the fabulous theology and the festivals of the civil gods and in the divine rites of the cities will find they are both civil How, then, can the power of giving eternal life be attributed to any of those gods whose own images and sacred rites convict them of being most like to the fabulous gods, which are most openly reprobated in forms, ages, sex, characteristics, marriages, generations, rites, in all which things they are understood either to have been men, and to have had their sacred rites and solemnities instituted in their honour according to the life or death of each of them, the demons suggesting and confirming this error, or certainly most foul spirits? who, taking advantage of some occasion or other, have stolen into the minds of men to deceive them. CHAPTER IX. And as to those very offices of the gods, so meanly and so minutely portioned out, so that they say that they ought to be supplicated, each one according to his special function, about which we have spoken much already, though not all that is to be said concerning it, are they not more consistent with mimic buffoonery than divine majesty?' if any one should use two nurses for his infant one of whom should give nothing but food the other nothing but drink as these make use of two goddesses for this purpose educa and potina he should certainly seem to be foolish and to do in his house a thing worthy of a mimic They would have Liber to have been named from Liberation, because through him males at the time of copulation are liberated by the emission of the seed. They also say that Libera, the same in their opinion as Venus, exercises the same function in the case of women, because they say that they also emit seed, and they also say that on this account the same part of the male and of the female is placed in the temple, that of the male to Liber, and that of the female to Libera. To these things they add the women assigned to Liber and the wine for exciting lust. Thus the Bacchanalia are celebrated with the utmost insanity, with respect to which Varro himself confesses that such things would not be done by the Bacchanals, except their minds were highly excited. These things, however, afterwards displeased a saner senate, and it ordered them to be discontinued. Here at length they perhaps perceived how much power unclean spirits, when held to be gods, exercise over the minds of men. These things certainly were not to be done in the theatres, for there they play, not rave, although to have gods who are delighted with such plays is very like raving. But what kind of distinction is this which he makes between the religious and the superstitious man, saying that the gods are feared by the superstitious man, but are reverenced as parents by the religious man, not feared as enemies, and that they are all so good that they will more readily spare those who are impious than hurt one who is innocent? And yet he tells us that three gods are assigned as guardians to a woman after she has been delivered, lest the god Sylvanus come in and molest her. And that, in order to signify the presence of these protectors, three men go round the house during the night and first strike the threshold with a hatchet, next with a pestle, and the third time sweep it with a brush. In order that these symbols of agriculture, having been exhibited, the god Sylvanus might be hindered from entering, because neither are trees cut down or pruned without a hatchet, neither is grain ground without a pestle nor corn heaped up without a besom. Now from these three things three gods have been named.' in from the cut made by the hatchet, Pilumnus from the pestle, Devera, from the besom, by which guardian gods the woman who has been delivered is preserved against the power of the god Sylvanus. Thus the guardianship of kindly disposed gods would not avail against the malice of a mischievous god unless they were three to one, and fought against him, as it were, with the opposing emblems of cultivation, who, being an inhabitant of the woods, is rough, horrible, and uncultivated. Is this the innocence of the gods? Is this their concord? Are these the health-giving deities of the cities more ridiculous than the things which are laughed at in the theatres? When a male and a female are united, the god Jugotins presides. Well, let this be borne with. but the married women must be brought home. The god Domiduchus is also invoked that she may be in the house. The god Domitius is introduced that she may remain with her husband. The goddess Manturne is used. What more is required? Let human modesty be spared, let the lust of flesh and blood go on with the rest, the secret of shame being respected. Why is the bedchamber filled with a crowd of deities, when even the groomsmen have departed? And, moreover, it is so filled, not that in consideration of their presence more regard may be paid to chastity, but by their help the woman, naturally of the weaker sex, and trembling with the novelty of her situation, may the more readily yield her virginity. For there are the god Virginiensis, and the godfather Subigus, and the goddess-mother Prema, and the goddess Pertunda, and Venus, and Priapus. What is this? If it was absolutely necessary that a man, laboring at this work, should be helped by the gods, might not some one god or goddess have been sufficient? Was Venus not sufficient alone, who is even said to be named from this, that without her power a woman does not cease to be a virgin? If there is any shame in men which is not in the deities, is it not the case that when the married couple believe that so many gods of either sex are present and busy at this work, they are so much affected with shame that the man is less moved and the woman more reluctant? And certainly, if the goddess Virginiensis is present to loose the virgin's zone, if the god Subigus is present that the virgin may be got under the man, if the goddess Prima is present that, having been got under him, she may be kept down and may not move herself, what has the goddess Protunda to do there? Let her, blush, let her go forth. Let the husband himself do something. It is disgraceful that any one but himself should do that from which she gets her name. But perhaps she is tolerated because she is said to be a goddess and not a god. For if she were believed to be a male and were called pertundus, the husband would demand more help against him for the chastity of his wife than the newly delivered woman against Silvanus.' but why am i saying this when priapus too is there a male to excess upon whose immense and most unsightly member the newly married bride is commanded to sit according to the most honourable and most religious custom of matrons Let them go on, and let them attempt with all the subtlety they can to distinguish the civil theology from the fabulous, the cities from the theatres, the temples from the stages, the sacred things of the priests from the songs of the poets, as honourable things from base things, truthful things from fallacious, grave from light, serious from ludicrous, desirable things from things to be rejected, we understand what they do. They are aware that that theatrical and fabulous theology hangs by the civil, and is reflected back upon it from the songs of the poets as from a Mirror. And thus, that theology, having been exposed to view which they do not dare to condemn, they more freely assail and censure that picture of it, in order that those who perceive what they mean may detest this very face itself, of which that is the picture, which, however, the gods themselves, as though seeing themselves in the same mirror, love so much, that it is better seen in both of them who and what they are. Whence also they have compelled their worshippers, with terrible commands, to dedicate to them the uncleanness of the fabulous theology, to put them among their solemnities, and reckon them among divine things. And thus they have both shown themselves more manifestly to be most impure spirits, and have made that rejected and reprobated theatrical theology, a member and a part of this, as it were, chosen and approved theology of the city, so that, though the whole is disgraceful and false, and contains in it fictitious gods, one part of it is in the literature of the priests, the other in the songs of the poets. Whether it may have other parts is another question. At present, I think, I have sufficiently shown, on account of the division of Varro, that the theology of the city and that of the theatre belong to one civil theology. Wherefore, because they are both equally disgraceful, absurd, shameful, false, far be it from religious men to hope for eternal life from either the one or the other." in fine even varro himself in his account and enumeration of the gods starts from the moment of a man's conception he commences the series of those gods who take charge of the man with janus carries it on to the death of the man decrepit with age and terminates it with the goddess nania who is sung at the funerals of the aged after that he begins to give an account of the other gods, whose province is not man himself, but man's belongings, has food, clothing, and all that is necessary for this life. And, in the case of all these, he explains what is the special office of each, and for what each ought to be supplicated. But with all this scrupulous and comprehensive diligence, he has neither proved the existence, nor so much as mentioned the name of any god from whom eternal life is to be sought, the one object for which we are Christians.' Who, then, is so stupid as not to perceive that this man, by setting forth and opening up so diligently the civil theology, and by examining its likeness to that fabulous, shameful, and disgraceful theology, and also by teaching that that fabulous sword is also a part of this other, was laboring to obtain a place in the minds of men for none but that natural theology, which he says pertains to philosophers, with such subtlety that he censures the fabulous, and not daring openly to censure the civil, shows its censurable character by simply exhibiting it? And thus, both being reprobated by the judgment of men of right understanding, the natural alone remains to be chosen. But concerning this in its own place, by the help of the true God, we have to discuss more diligently. CHAPTER Ten. That liberty and truth which this man wanted, so that he did not dare to censure that theology of the city, which is very similar to the theatrical, so openly as he did the theatrical itself, was, though not fully, yet in part possessed by Aeneas Seneca, whom we have some evidence to show to have flourished in the times of our apostles. It was in part possessed by him, I say, for he possessed it in writing, but not in living. For in that book which he wrote against superstition, he more copiously and vehemently censured that civil and urban theology than Varro. The theatrical and fabulous. For when speaking concerning images, he says, they dedicate images of the sacred and inviolable immortals in most worthless and motionless matter. They give them the appearance of man, beasts, and fishes, and some make them of mixed sex and heterogeneous bodies. They call them deities, when they are such that if they should get breath and should suddenly meet them, they would be held to be monsters.' Then, a while afterwards, when extolling the natural theology, he had expounded the sentiments of certain philosophers, he opposes to himself a question, and says, Here someone says, Shall I believe that the heavens and the earth are God's, and that some are above the moon and some below it? Shall I bring forward either Plato or the peripatetic Strato, one of whom made God to be without a body, the other without a mind? In answer to which he says... And, really, what truer do the dreams of Titus Tatius, or Romulus, or Tullus Hostilius appear to thee? Tatius declared the divinity of the goddess Cloacina, Romulus that of Picus and Tiberinus, Tullus Hostilius that of Pavor and Pallor, the most disagreeable affections of men, the one of which is the agitation of the mind under fright, the other that of the body, not a disease, indeed, but a change of color. Wilt thou rather believe that these are deities and receive them into heaven? But with what freedom he has written concerning the rites themselves cruel and shameful! One, he says, castrates himself, another cuts his arms. Where will they find room for the fear of these gods when angry, who use such means of gaining their favour when propitious? But gods who wish to be worshipped in this fashion should be worshipped in none. So great is the frenzy of the mind when perturbed and driven from its seat, that the gods are propitiated by men in a manner in which not even men of the greatest ferocity and fable-renowned cruelty vent their rage. Tyrants have lacerated the limbs of some, they never ordered any one to lacerate his own you <laughs> For the gratification of royal lusts some have been castrated, but no one ever by the command of his lord laid violent hands on himself to emasculate himself. They kill themselves in the temples, they supplicate with their wounds and with their blood. If any one has time to see the things they do and the things they suffer, he will find so many things unseemly for men of respectability, so unworthy of free men, so unlike the doings of sane men, that no one would doubt that they are mad, had they been mad with the minority. But now the multitude of the insane is the defence of their insanity he next relates those things which are wont to be done in the capital and with the utmost intrepidity insists that they are such things as one could only believe to be done by men making sport or by madmen for having spoken with the derision of this that in the egyptian sacred rites Osiris being lost is lamented for but straightway when found is the occasion of great joy by his reappearance because both the losing and the finding of him are feigned and yet that grief and that joy which are elicited thereby from those who have lost nothing and found nothing are real having i say so spoken of this he says still there is a fixed time for this frenzy it is tolerable to go mad once in the year go into the capital one is suggesting divine commands to a god another is telling the hours to jupiter one is a lictor another is an anointer who with a mere movement of his arms imitates one anointing there are women who arrange the hair of juno and minerva standing far away not only from her image but even from her temple these move their fingers in the manner of hairdressers. there are some women who hold a mirror there are some who are calling the gods to assist them in court there are some who are holding up documents to them and are explaining to them their cases a learned and distinguished comedian now old and decrepit was daily playing the mimic in the capital as though the gods would gladly be spectators of that which men had ceased to care about every kind of artificers working for the immortal gods is dwelling there in idleness And a little after, he says, Nevertheless these, though they give themselves up to the gods for purposes superfluous enough, do not do so for any abominable or infamous purpose. There sit certain women in the capital who think they are beloved by Jupiter, nor are they frightened even by the look of the, if you will believe the poet's, most wrathful Juno. This liberty Varro did not enjoy. It was only the poetical theology he seemed to censure. The civil, which this man cuts to pieces, he was not bold enough to impugn. But if we attend to the truth, the temples where these things are performed are far worse than the theatres where they are represented. Whence with respect to these sacred rites of the civil theology, Seneca preferred, as the best course to be followed by a wise man, to feign respect for them in act, but to have no real regard for them in heart. All which things, he says, a wise man will observe as being commanded by the laws, but not as being pleasing to the gods. And a little after, he says, And what of this, that we unite the gods in marriage, and that not even naturally, for we join brothers and sisters. We marry Bellona to Mars, Venus to Vulcan, Salacia to Neptune. Some of them we leave unmarried, as though there were no match for them, which is surely needless, especially when there are certain unmarried goddesses, as Populonia, or Fulgora, or the goddess Rumina, for whom I am not astonished that suitors have been wanting.' all this ignoble crowd of gods which the superstition of ages has amassed we ought he says to adore in such a way as to remember all the while that its worship belongs rather to custom than to reality wherefore neither those laws nor customs instituted in the civil theology that which was pleasing to the gods or which pertained to reality but this man whom philosophy had made as it were free nevertheless because he was an illustrious senator of the roman people worshipped what he censured did what he condemned adored what he reproached because forsooth philosophy had taught him something great namely not to be superstitious in the world but on account of the laws of cities and the customs of men to be an actor not on the stage but in the temples conduct the more to be condemned, that those things which he was deceitfully acting he so acted that the people thought he was acting sincerely. But a stage-actor would rather delight people by acting plays than take them in by false pretences. CHAPTER Eleven seneca among the other superstitions of civil theology also found fault with the sacred things of the jews and especially the sabbaths affirming that they act uselessly in keeping those seventh days whereby they lose through idleness about the seventh part of their life and also many things which demand immediate attention are damaged The Christians, however, who were already most hostile to the Jews, he did not dare to mention, either for praise or blame, lest, if he praised them, he should do so against the ancient custom of his country, or, perhaps, if he should blame them, he should do so against his own will. When he was speaking concerning those Jews, he said, When, meanwhile, the customs of that most accursed nation have gained such strength that they have been now received in all lands, the conquered have given laws to the conquerors. By these words he expresses his astonishment, and not knowing what the providence of God was leading him to say, subjoins in plain words an opinion by which he showed what he thought about the meaning of those sacred institutions. For, he says, those, however, know the cause of their rights, whilst the greater part of the people know not why they perform theirs. But concerning the solemnities of the Jews, either why or how far they were instituted by divine authority, and afterwards in due time by the same authority taken away from the people of God, to whom the mystery of eternal life was revealed, we have both spoken elsewhere, especially when we were treating against the Manichaeans, and also intend to speak in this work in a more suitable place. CHAPTER Twelve. Now, since there are three theologies, which the Greeks call respectively mythical, physical, and political, and which may be called in Latin fabulous, natural, and civil, and since neither from the fabulous, which even the worshippers of many and false gods have themselves most freely censured, nor from the civil, of which that is convicted of being a part, or even worse than it, can eternal life be hoped for from any of these theologies, if any one thinks that what has been said in this book is not enough for him, let him also add to it the many and various dissertations concerning God as the giver of Felicity, contained in the former books, especially the fourth one. For to what but to Felicity should men consecrate themselves, were Felicity a goddess? However, as it is not a goddess, but a gift of God, to what God but the giver of happiness ought we to consecrate ourselves, who piously love eternal life, in which there is true and full Felicity?' But I think from what has been said, no one ought to doubt that none of those gods is the giver of happiness, who are worshipped with such shame, and who, if they are not so worshipped, are more shamefully enraged, and thus confess that they are most foul spirits. Moreover, how can he give eternal life who cannot give happiness? For we mean by eternal life that life where there is endless happiness. For if the soul live in eternal punishments, by which also those unclean spirits shall be tormented, that is rather eternal death than eternal life. For there is no greater or worse death than when death never dies. But because the soul, from its very nature, being created immortal, cannot be without some kind of life, its utmost death is alienation from the life of God in an eternity of punishment. So, then, he only who gives true happiness gives eternal life, that is, an endlessly happy life and since those gods whom this civil theology worships have been proved to be unable to give this happiness they ought not to be worshipped on account of those temporal and terrestrial things as we showed in the five former books much less on account of eternal life which is to be after death as we have sought to show in this one book especially whilst the other books also lend it their co-operation But since the strength of inveterate habit has its roots very deep, if any one thinks that I have not disputed sufficiently to show that this civil theology ought to be rejected and shunned, let him attend to another book, which, with God's help, is to be joined to this one. End of Book Six, Chapters Seven through Twelve. Recording by Darren L. Slider, Fort Worth, Texas. www.logoslibrary.org. Book Seven. Preface and Chapters 1 through 17 of The City of God. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Darren L. Slider, www.logoslibrary.org. The City of God by St. Augustine of Hippo, Book 7, Preface it will be the duty of those who are endowed with quicker and better understandings in whose case the former books are sufficient and more than sufficient to effect their intended object to bear with me with patience and equanimity whilst i attempt with more than ordinary diligence to tear up and eradicate depraved and ancient opinions hostile to the truth of piety which the long-continued error of the human race has fixed very deeply in unenlightened minds co ALSO IN THIS, ACCORDING TO MY LITTLE MEASURE, WITH THE GRACE OF HIM WHO, BEING THE TRUE GOD, IS ABLE TO ACCOMPLISH IT, AND ON WHOSE HELP I DEPEND IN MY WORK, AND FOR THE SAKE OF OTHERS SUCH SHOULD NOT DEEM SUPERFLUOUS WHAT THEY FEEL TO BE NO LONGER NECESSARY FOR THEMSELVES. A VERY GREAT MATTER IS AT STAKE WHEN THE TRUE AND TRULY HOLY DIVINITY IS COMMENDED TO MEN AS THAT WHICH THEY OUGHT TO SEEK AFTER AND TO WORSHIP not, however, on account of the transitory vapour of mortal life, but on account of life eternal, which alone is blessed. Although the help necessary for this frail life we are now living is also afforded us by it. CHAPTER I. If there is any one whom the sixth book which i have last finished has not persuaded that this divinity or so to speak deity for this word also our authors do not hesitate to use in order to translate more accurately that which the greeks call theotes if there is any one i say whom the sixth book has not persuaded that this divinity or deity is not to be found in that theology which they call civil and which marcus varro has explained in sixteen books that is, that the happiness of eternal life is not attainable through the worship of gods such as states have established to be worshipped, and that in such a form, perhaps when he has read this book he will not have anything further to desire in order to the clearing up of this question. For it is possible that some one may think that at least the select and chief gods, whom Varro comprised in his last book, and of whom we have not spoken sufficiently, are to be worshipped on account of the blessed life which is none other than eternal.' In respect to which matter I do not say what Tertullian said, perhaps more wittily than truly. If gods are selected like onions, certainly the rest are rejected as bad.' i do not say this for i see that even from among the select some are selected for some greater and more excellent office as in warfare when recruits have been elected there are some again elected from among those for the performance of some greater military service and in the church when persons are elected to be overseers certainly the rest are not rejected since all good christians are deservedly called elect in the erection of a building corner-stones are elected though the other stones which are destined for other parts of the structure are not rejected grapes are elected for eating whilst the others which we leave for drinking are not rejected there is no need of adducing many illustrations since the thing is evident Wherefore, the selection of certain gods from among many affords no proper reason why either he who wrote on this subject, or the worshippers of the gods, or the gods themselves, should be spurned. We ought rather to seek to know what gods these are, and for what purpose they may appear to have been selected. CHAPTER two: The following gods, certainly, Varro signalizes as select, devoting one book to this subject— Janus, Jupiter, Saturn, Genius, Mercury, Apollo, Mars, Vulcan, Neptune, Sol, Orcus, Father Liber, Tellus, Ceres, Juno, Luna, Diana, Minerva, Venus, Vesta, of which twenty gods, twelve are males and eight females. Whether are these deities called select, because of their higher spheres of administration in the world, or because they have become better known to the people, and more worship has been expended on them if it be on account of the greater works which are performed by them in the world we ought not to have found them among that as it were plebeian crowd of deities which is assigned to it the charge of minute and trifling things for first of all at the conception of a foetus from which point all the works commence which have been distributed in minute detail to many deities janus himself opens the way for the reception of the seed there also is saturn on account of the seed itself there is liber who liberates the male by the effusion of the seed there is liber whom they also would have to be venus who confers this same benefit on the woman namely that she also be liberated by the emission of the seed all these are of the number of those who are called select but there is also the goddess mena who presides over the menses though the daughter of jupiter ignoble nevertheless in this province of the menses the same author in his book on the select gods assigns to juno herself who is even queen among the select gods and here as juno lucina along with the same mena her stepdaughter she presides over the same blood There also are two gods, exceedingly obscure, Vitumnus and Centinus, the one of whom imparts life to the fetus, and the other sensation, and of a truth they bestow, most ignoble though they be, far more than all those noble and select gods bestow. For surely, without life and sensation, what is the whole fetus which a woman carries in her womb, but a most vile and worthless thing, no better than slime and dust? CHAPTER three. What is the cause, therefore, which has driven so many select gods to these very small works, in which they are excelled by Vitumnus and Centinus, although little known, and sunk in obscurity, inasmuch as they confer the munificent gifts of life and sensation? For the select Janus bestows an entrance, and, as it were, a door for the seed. The select Saturn bestows the seed itself. The select Libra bestows on men the emission of the same seed. Libera, who is Ceres, or Venus, confers the same on women. The select Juno confers, not alone, but together with Mena, the daughter of Jupiter, the menses, for the growth of that which has been conceived, and the obscure and ignoble Vitumnus confers life, whilst the obscure and ignoble Sentinus confers sensation, which two last things are as much more excellent than the others, as they themselves are excelled by reason and intellect. For as those things which reason and understand are preferable to those which, without intellect and reason, as in the case of cattle, live and feel, so also those things which have been endowed with life and sense are deservedly preferred to those things which neither live nor feel. Therefore Vitumnus the life-giver, and Sentinus the sense-giver, ought to have been reckoned among the select gods, rather than Janus the admitter of seed, and Saturn the giver or sower of seed, and Liber and Liber are the movers and liberators of seed, which seed is not worth a thought unless it attained to life and sensation. Yet these select gifts are not given by select gods, but by certain unknown, and, considering their dignity, neglected gods.' but if it be replied that janus has dominion over all beginnings and therefore the opening of the way for conception is not without reason assigned to him and that saturn has dominion over all seeds and therefore the sowing of the seed whereby a human being is generated cannot be excluded from his operation that Liber and Libera have power over the emission of all seeds, and therefore preside over those seeds which pertain to the procreation of men, that Juno presides over all pregations and births, and therefore she has also charge of the pregations of women and the births of human beings, if they give this reply, let them find an answer to the question concerning Vitumnus and Centinus, whether they are willing that these likewise should have dominion over all things which live and feel.' If they grant this, let them observe in how sublime a position they are about to place them. For to spring from seeds is in the earth and of the earth, but to live and feel are supposed to be properties even of the sidereal gods. But if they say that only such things as come to life in flesh, and are supported by senses, or assigned to sentinus, why does not that god, who made all things live and feel, bestow on flesh also life and sensation, in the universality of his operation conferring also on fetuses this gift? And what, then, is the use of Vitumnus and Centinus? But if these, as it were, extreme and lowest things have been committed by him who presides universally over life and sense to these gods, as to servants, are these select gods then so destitute of servants, that they could not find any to whom even they might commit those things, but with all their dignity, for which they are, it seems, deemed worthy to be selected, were compelled to perform their work along with ignoble ones?' Juno is select queen of the gods, and the sister and wife of Jupiter. Nevertheless she is Iterduca, the conductor, to boys, and performs this work along with the most ignoble pair, the goddesses Abiona and Adeona. There they have also placed the goddess Mena, who gives to boys a good mind, and she is not placed among the select gods, as if anything greater could be bestowed on a man than a good mind.' But Juno is placed among the select because she is Iterduca and Domiduca, she who conducts one on a journey, and who conducts him home again, as if it is of any advantage for one to make a journey, and to be conducted home again, if his mind is not good. And yet the goddess who bestows that gift has not been placed by the selectors among the select gods, though she ought indeed to have been preferred even to Minerva, to whom, in this minute distribution of work, they have allotted the memory of boys.' for who will doubt that it is a far better thing to have a good mind than ever so great a memory for no one is bad who has a good mind but some who are very bad are possessed of an admirable memory and are so much the worse the less they are able to forget the bad things which they think and yet minerva is among the select gods whilst the goddess Mena is hidden by a worthless crowd what shall i say concerning virtus what concerning felicitas concerning whom i have already spoken much in the fourth book to whom though they held them to be goddesses they have not thought fit to assign a place among the select gods among whom they have given a place to mars and orcus the one the causer of death the other the receiver of the dead since, therefore, we see that even the select gods themselves work together with the others like a senate with the people, in all those minute works which have been minutely portioned out among many gods and since we find that far greater and better things are administered by certain gods who have not been reckoned worthy to be selected than by those who are called select, it remains that we suppose that they were called select in chief not on account of their holding more exalted offices in the world but because it happened to them to become better known to the people. And even Varro himself says that in the way obscurity has fallen to the lot of some father-gods and mother-goddesses as it falls to the lot of man. If, therefore, felicity ought not perhaps to have been put among the select gods, because they did not attain to that noble position by merit, but by chance, fortune at least should have been placed among them, or rather before them, for they say that that goddess distributes to every one the gifts she receives, not according to any rational arrangement, but according as chance may determine.' she ought to have held the uppermost place among the select gods for among them chiefly it is that she shows what power she has for we see that they have been selected not on account of some eminent virtue or rational happiness but by that random power of fortune which the worshippers of these gods think that she exerts For that most eloquent man, Sallust, also may perhaps have the gods themselves in view, when he says, But in truth fortune rules in everything. It renders all things famous or obscure according to caprice, rather than according to truth. For they cannot discover a reason why Venus should have been made famous whilst Virtus has been made obscure, when the divinity of both of them has been solemnly recognised by them, and their merits are not to be compared again if she has deserved a noble position on account of the fact that she is much sought after for there are more who seek after venus than after virtus why has minerva been celebrated whilst pecunia has been left in obscurity although throughout the whole human race avarice allures a far greater number than skill And even among those who are skilled in the arts, you will rarely find a man who does not practice his own art for the purpose of pecuniary gain, and that for the sake of which anything is made is always valued more than that which is made for the sake of something else. If, then, this selection of gods has been made by the judgment of the foolish multitude, why has not the goddess Pecunia been preferred to Minerva, since there are many artificers for the sake of money?' But if this distinction has been made by the few wise, why has Virtus been preferred to Venus, when reason by far prefers the former?' At all events, as I have already said, Fortune herself, who, according to those who attribute most influence to her, renders all things famous or obscure according to Caprice, rather than according to the truth, since she has been able to exercise so much power even over the gods, as according to her capricious judgment, to render those of them famous whom she would, and those obscure whom she would, Fortune herself ought to occupy the place of pre-eminence among the select gods, since over them also she has such pre-eminent power.' Or must we suppose that the reason why she is not among the select is simply this, that even fortune herself has had an adverse fortune? She was adverse, then, to herself, since, whilst ennobling others, she herself has remained obscure. CHAPTER four. However, any one who eagerly seeks for celebrity and renown might congratulate those select gods and call them fortunate, were it not that he saw that they had been selected more to their injury than to their honour for that low crowd of gods have been protected by their very meanness and obscurity from being overwhelmed with infamy. We laugh, indeed, when we see them distributed by the mere fiction of human opinions, according to the special works assigned to them, like those who farm small portions of the public revenue, or like workmen in the street of the silversmiths, where one vessel, in order that it may go out perfect, passes through the hands of many, when it might have been finished by one perfect workman. But the only reason why the combined skill of many workmen was thought necessary was that it is better that each part of an art should be learned by a special workman, which can be done speedily and easily, than that they should all be compelled to be perfect in one art throughout all its parts, which they could only attain slowly and with difficulty.' Nevertheless, there is scarcely to be found one of the non-select gods who has brought infamy on himself by any crime, whilst there is scarce any one of the select gods who has not received upon himself the brand of notable infamy. These latter have descended to the humble works of the others, whilst the others have not come up to their sublime crimes. Concerning Janus, there does not readily occur to my recollection anything infamous, and perhaps he was such an one as lived more innocently than the rest, and further removed from misdeeds and crimes.' He kindly received and entertained Saturn when he was fleeing. He divided his kingdom with his guests, so that each one of them had a city for himself, the one Ianiculum, the other Saturnia. But those seekers, after every kind of unseemliness in the worship of the gods, have disgraced him, whose life they found to be less disgraceful than that of the other gods, with an image of monstrous deformity, making it sometimes with two faces, and sometimes, as it were, double with four faces. Did they wish that as the most of the select gods had lost shame through the perpetration of shameful crimes, his greater innocence should be marked by a greater number of faces? CHAPTER Five. But let us hear their own physical interpretations by which they attempt to colour, as with the appearance of profounder doctrine, the baseness of most miserable error.' Varro, in the first place, commends these interpretations so strongly as to say that the ancients invented the images, badges, and adornments of the gods, in order that when those who went to the mysteries should see them with their bodily eyes, they might with the eyes of their minds see the soul of the world, and its parts, that is, the true gods, and also that the meaning which was intended by those who made their images with the human form seemed to be this, namely, that the mind of mortals which is in a human body is very like to the immortal mind, just as vest- vessels might be placed to represent the gods, as, for instance, a wine-vessel might be placed in the temple of Liber to signify wine, that which is contained being signified by that which contains. Thus by an image which had the human form the rational soul was signified, because the human form is the vessel, as it were, in which that nature is wont to be contained, which they attribute to God or to the gods. These are the mysteries of doctrine to which that most learned man penetrated, in order that he might bring them forth to the light." but o thou most acute man hast thou lost among those mysteries that prudence which led thee to form the sober opinion that those who first established those images for the people took away fear from the citizens and added error and that the ancient romans honoured the gods more chastely without images for it was through consideration of them that thou wast emboldened to speak these things against the later romans For if those most ancient Romans also had worshipped images, perhaps thou wouldst have suppressed by the silence of fear all those sentiments, true sentiments nevertheless, concerning the folly of setting up images, and wouldst have extolled more loftily and more loquaciously those mysterious doctrines consisting of these vain and pernicious fictions. Thy soul, so learned and so clever, and for this I grieve much for thee, could never through these mysteries have reached its God, that is, the God by whom, not with whom, it was made, of whom it is not a part, but a work, that God who is not the soul of all things, but who made every soul, and in whose light alone every soul is blessed, if it be not ungrateful for his grace. But the things which follow in this book will show what is the nature of these mysteries, and what value is to be set upon them meanwhile this most learned man confesses as his opinion that the soul of the world and its parts are the true gods from which we perceive that his theology to wit that same natural theology to which he pays great regard has been able in its completeness to extend itself even to the nature of the rational soul for in this book concerning the select gods he says a very few things by anticipation concerning the natural theology, and we shall see whether he has been able in that book, by means of physical interpretations, to refer to this natural theology, that civil theology, concerning which he wrote last when treating of the select gods. Now if he has been able to do this, the whole is natural, and in that case what need was there for distinguishing so carefully the civil from the natural? But if it has been distinguished by a veritable distinction, then, since not even this natural theology with which he is so much pleased is true, for though it has reached as far as the soul, it has not reached to the true God who made the soul, how much more contemptible and false is that civil theology which is chiefly occupied about what is corporeal, as will be shown by its very interpretations, which they have with such diligence sought out and enucleated, some of which I must necessarily mention. CHAPTER six. The same Varro, then, still speaking by anticipation, says that he thinks that God is the soul of the world, which the Greeks call cosmos, and that this world itself is God, but as a wise man, though he consists of body and mind, is nevertheless called wise on account of his mind, so the world is called God on account of mind, although it consists of mind and body. Here he seems, in some fashion at least, to acknowledge one God. But that he may introduce more, he adds that the world is divided into two parts, heaven and earth, which are again divided each into two parts, heaven into ether and air, earth into water and land, of all which the ether is the highest, the air second, the water third, and the earth the lowest. All these four parts, he says, are full of souls, those which are in the ether and air being immortal, and those which are in the water and on the earth mortal. From the highest part of the heavens to the orbit of the moon there are souls, namely the stars and planets, and these are not only understood to be gods, but are seen to be such. And between the orbit of the moon and the commencement of the region of clouds and winds there are aerial souls, but these are seen with the mind, not with the eyes, and are called heroes, and lares, and genii. This is the natural theology which is briefly set forth in these anticipatory statements, and which satisfied not Varro only, but many philosophers besides. This I must discuss more carefully, when, with the help of God, I shall have completed what I have yet to say concerning the civil theology, as far as it concerns the select gods. CHAPTER seven. Who, then, is Janus, with whom Varro commences? He is the world. Certainly a very brief and unambiguous reply. Why, then, do they say that the beginnings of things pertain to him, but the ends to another, whom they call Terminus? For they say that two months have been dedicated to these two gods, with reference to beginnings and ends, January to Janus, and February to Terminus, over and above those ten months which commence with March and end with December. And they say that that is the reason why the Terminalia are celebrated in the month of February, the same month in which the sacred purification is made which they call Februum, and from which the month derives its name. Do the beginnings of things, therefore, pertain to the world which is Janus, and not also the ends, since another god has been placed over them? Do they not own that all things which they say begin in this world also come to an end in this world? What folly it is to give him only half power in work, when in his image they give him two faces! Would it not be a far more elegant way of interpreting the two-faced image, to say that Janus and Terminus are the same, and that the one face has reference to beginnings, the other to ends?— for one who works ought to have respect to both for he who in every forth-putting of activity does not look back on the beginning does not look forward to the end wherefore it is necessary that prospective intention be connected with retrospective memory for how shall one find how to finish anything if he has forgotten what it was which he had begun but if they thought that the blessed life is begun in this world and perfected beyond the world and for that reason attributed to janus that is to the world only the power of beginnings they should certainly have preferred terminus to him and should not have shut him out from the number of the select gods Yet even now, when the beginnings and ends of temporal things are represented by these two gods, more honour ought to have been given to Terminus. For the greater joy is that which is felt when anything is finished. But things begun are always cause of much anxiety, until they are brought to an end, which end he who begins anything very greatly longs for, fixes his mind on, expects, desires. Nor does any one ever rejoice over anything he has begun, unless it be brought to an end. CHAPTER eight but now let the interpretation of the two-faced image be produced for they say that it has two faces one before and one behind because our gaping mouths seem to resemble the world whence the greeks call the palate uranos and some latin poets he says have called the heavens Palatum. and from the gaping mouth they say there is a way out in the direction of the teeth and a way in in the direction of the gullet see what the world has been brought to on account of a greek or a poetical word for our palate Let this god be worshipped only on account of saliva, which has two open doorways under the heavens of the palate, one through which part of it may be spitten out, the other through which part of it may be swallowed down. Besides, what is more absurd than not to find in the world itself two doorways opposite to each other, through which it may either receive anything into itself, or cast it out from itself?' and to seek of our throat and gullet, to which the world has no resemblance, to make up an image of the world in Janus, because the world is said to resemble the palate, to which Janus bears no likeness. But when they make him four-faced, and call him double Janus, they interpret this as having reference to the four quarters of the world, as though the world looked out on anything, like Janus through his four faces. Again, if Janus is the world, and the world consists of four quarters, then the image of the two-faced Janus is false. Or, if it is true, because the whole world is sometimes understood by the expression East and West, will any one call the world double when North and South also are mentioned, as they call Janus double when he has four faces? They have no way at all of interpreting, in relation to the world, four doorways by which to go in and to come out, as they did in the case of the two-faced Janus, where they found, at any rate, in the human mouth, something which answered to what they said about him unless perhaps neptune come to their aid and hand them a fish which besides the mouth and gullet has also the openings of the gills one on each side nevertheless with all the doors no soul escapes this vanity but that one which hears the truth saying i am the door chapter nine but they also show whom they would have jove who is also called jupiter understood to be he is the god say they who has the power of the causes by which anything comes to be in the world and how great a thing this is that most noble verse of virgil testifies happy is he who has learned the causes of things but why is janus preferred to him let that most acute and most learned man answer us this question because says he janus has dominion over first things jupiter over highest things therefore jupiter is deservedly held to be the king of all things for highest things are better than first things for although first things proceed in time highest things excel by dignity now this would have been rightly said had the first parts of things which are done been distinguished from the highest parts as for instance it is the beginning of a thing done to set out the highest part to arrive the commencing to learn is the first part of a thing begun the acquirement of knowledge is the highest part and so of all things the beginnings are first the ends highest this matter however has already been discussed in connection with janus and terminus but the causes which are attributed to Jupiter are things effecting, not things effected, and it is impossible for them to be rendered in time by things which are made or done, or by the beginnings of such things, for the thing which makes is always prior to the thing which is made. Therefore, though the beginnings of things which are made or done pertain to Janus, they are nevertheless not prior to the efficient causes which they attribute to Jupiter.' For as nothing takes place without being preceded by an efficient cause, so without an efficient cause nothing begins to take place. Verily, if the people call this god Jupiter, in whose power are all the causes of all natures which have been made, and of all natural things, and worship him with such insults and infamous criminations, they are guilty of more shocking sacrilege than if they should totally deny the existence of any god.' it would therefore be better for them to call some other god by the name of jupiter some one worthy of base and criminal honours substituting instead of jupiter some vain fiction as saturn is said to have had a stone given to him to devour instead of his son which they might make the subject of their blasphemies rather than speak of that god as both thundering and committing adultery ruling the whole world, and laying himself out for the commission of so many licentious acts, having in his power nature and the highest causes of all natural things, but not having his own causes good. Next I ask what place they find any longer for this Jupiter among the gods if Janus is the world. For Varro defined the true gods to be the soul of the world and the parts of it. And therefore whatever falls not within this definition is certainly not a true god, according to them.' will they then say that jupiter is the soul of the world and janus the body that is this visible world if they say this it will not be possible for them to affirm that janus is a god for even according to them the body of the world is not a god but the soul of the world and its parts wherefore varro seeing this says that he thinks god is the soul of the world and that this world itself is god but that as a wise man though he consists of soul and body is nevertheless called wise from the soul so the world is called god from the soul though it consists of soul and body therefore the body of the world alone is not god but either the soul of it alone or the soul and the body together yet so as that it is god not by virtue of the body but by virtue of the soul if therefore janus is the world and janus is a god will they say in order that jupiter may be a god that he is some part of janus for they are wont rather to attribute universal existence to jupiter whence the saying all things are full of jupiter therefore they must think jupiter also in order that he may be a god and especially king of the gods to be the world that he may rule over the other gods according to them his parts To this effect also the same Varro expounds certain verses of Valerius Soranus in that book which he wrote, apart from the others concerning the worship of the gods. These are the verses. Almighty Jove, progenitor of kings and things and gods, and eke the mother of the gods, God one and all. But in the same book he expounds these verses by saying that as the male emits seed, and the female receives it, so Jupiter, whom they believed to be the world, both emits all seeds from himself, and receives them into himself. For which reason, he says, Soranus wrote, Jove progenitor and mother, and with no less reason said that one and all were the same? For the world is one, and in that one are all things. CHAPTER ten since therefore janus is the world and jupiter is the world wherefore are janus and jupiter two gods while the world is but one why do they have separate temples separate altars different rites dissimilar images if it be because the nature of beginnings is one and the nature of causes another and one has received the name of janus and the other of jupiter is it then the case that if one man has two distinct offices of authority or two arts two judges or two artificers are spoken of because the nature of the offices or of the arts is different so also with respect to one god If he have the power of beginnings and of causes, must he therefore be thought to be two gods, because beginnings and causes are two things? But if they think that this is right, let them also affirm that Jupiter is as many gods as they have given him surnames, on account of many powers. For the things from which these surnames are applied to him are many and diverse. I shall mention a few of them. CHAPTER Eleven. They have called him Victor, Invictus, Opitulus, Impulsor, Stator, Centumpeda, Supinalis, Tegillus, Almus, Ruminus, and other names which were long to enumerate. But these surnames they have given to one god on account of diverse causes and powers, but yet have not compelled him to be, on account of so many things, as many gods. They give him these surnames because he conquered all things, because he was conquered by none, because he brought help to the needy, because he had the power of impelling, stopping, establishing, throwing on the back, because as a beam he held together and sustained the world, because he nourished all things, because, like the pap, he nourished animals. Here, we perceive, are some great things and some small things, and yet it is one who is said to perform them all. I think that the causes and the beginnings of things, on account of which they have thought that the one world is two gods, Jupiter and Janus, are nearer to each other than the holding together of the world and the giving of the pap to animals. And yet, on account of these two works so far apart from each other, both in nature and dignity, there has not been any necessity for the existence of two gods, but one Jupiter has been called, on account of the one Tegelus, on account of the other Ruminus.' I am unwilling to say that the giving of the pap to sucking animals might have become Juno rather than Jupiter, especially whether it was the goddess Rumina to help and to serve her in this work, for I think it may be replied that Juno herself is nothing else than Jupiter, according to those verses of Valerius Soranus, where it has been said, Almighty Jove, progenitor of kings and things and gods, and eke the mother of the gods, etc., why, then, was he called Ruminus, when they who may perchance inquire more diligently may find that he is also that goddess Rumina?' If, then, it was rightly thought unworthy of the majesty of the gods, that in one ear of corn one god should have the care of the joint, another that of the husk, how much more unworthy of that majesty is it that one thing, and that of the lowest kind, even the giving of the pap to animals, that they may be nourished, should be under the care of two gods, one of whom is Jupiter himself, the very king of all things, who does this not along with his own wife, but with some ignoble Rumina.' unless perhaps he himself is Rumina, being Ruminus for males and Rumina for females. I should certainly have said that they had been unwilling to apply to Jupiter a feminine name, had he not been styled in these verses progenitor and mother, and had I not read among other surnames of his that of Pecunia, money, which we found as a goddess among those petty deities, as I have already mentioned in the fourth book. But since both males and females have money, Pecunia, why has he not been called both Pecunius and Pecunia? That is their concern. CHAPTER Twelve. How elegantly they have accounted for this name! He is also called Pecunia, they say, because all things belong to him. Oh, how grand an explanation of the name of a deity! Yes, he to whom all things belong is most meanly and most contumeliously called Pecunia. In comparison of all things which are contained by heaven and earth, what are all things together which are possessed by men under the name of money?' and this name forsooth hath avarice given to jupiter that whoever was a lover of money might seem to himself to love not an ordinary god but the very king of all things himself but it would be a far different thing if he had been called riches for riches are one thing money another for we call rich the wise the just the good who have either no money or very little For they are more truly rich in possessing virtue, since by it, even as respects things necessary for the body, they are content with what they have. But we call the greedy poor, who are always craving and always wanting. For they may possess ever so great an amount of money, but whatever be the abundance of that, they are not able but to want. And we properly call God himself rich, not, however, in money, but in omnipotence. Therefore they who have abundance of money are called rich, but inwardly needy, if they are greedy.' So also those who have no money are called poor, but inwardly rich, if they are wise. What, then, ought the wise man to think of this theology, in which the king of the gods receives the name of that thing which no wise man has desired? For had there been anything wholesomely taught by this philosophy concerning eternal life, how much more appropriately would that god who is the ruler of the world have been called by them, not money, but wisdom, the love of which purges from the filth of avarice, that is, of the love of money? chapter thirteen but why speak more of this jupiter with whom perchance all the rest are to be identified so that he being all the opinion as to the existence of many gods may remain as a mere opinion empty of all truth and they are all to be referred to him if his various parts and powers are thought of as so many gods or if the principle of mind which they think to be diffused through all things has received the names of many gods from the various parts which the mass of this visible world combines in itself and from the manifold administration of nature for what is saturn also one of the principal gods he says who has dominion over all sowings does not the exposition of the verses of Valerius Serranus teach that Jupiter is the world, and that he emits all seeds from himself, and receives them into himself? It is he, then, with whom is the dominion of all sowings. What is genius? He is the god who is set over, and has the power of begetting all things. Who else than the world do they believe to have this power, to which it has been said, Almighty Jove, progenitor, and mother? And when, in another place, he says that genius is the rational soul of every one, and therefore exists separately in each individual, but that the corresponding soul of the world is God, he just comes back to this same thing, namely that the soul of the world itself is to be held to be, as it were, the universal genius. This, therefore, is what he calls Jupiter. For if every genius is a God, and the soul of every man a genius, it follows that the soul of every man is a God. But if very absurdity compels even these theologists themselves to shrink from this, it remains that they call that genius God by special and pre-eminent distinction, whom they call the soul of the world, and therefore Jupiter. Chapter fourteen. But they have not found how to refer Mercury and Mars to any parts of the world, and to the works of God which are in the elements. And therefore they have set them at least over human works, making them assistants in speaking and in carrying on wars." now mercury if he has also the power of the speech of the gods rules also over the king of the gods himself if jupiter as he receives from him the faculty of speech also speaks according as it is his pleasure to permit him which surely is absurd. But if it is only the power over human speech which is held to be attributed to him, then we say it is incredible that Jupiter should have condescended to give the pap not only to children, but also to beasts, from which he has been surnamed Ruminus, and yet should have been unwilling that the care of our speech by which we excel the beasts should pertain to him. And thus speech itself belongs both to Jupiter and his Mercury.' But if speech itself is said to be mercury, as those things which are said concerning him by way of interpretation show it to be, for he is said to have been called mercury, that is, he who runs between, because speech runs between men, they say also that the Greeks call him Hermes, because speech, or interpretation, which certainly belongs to speech, is called by them Herminea. Also he is said to preside over payments, because speech passes between sellers and buyers.' The wings, too, which he has on his head and on his feet, they say mean that speech passes winged through the air. He is also said to have been called the messenger, because by means of speech all our thoughts are expressed. If, therefore, speech itself is mercury, then even by their own confession he is not a god. But when they make to themselves gods of such as are not even demons, by praying to unclean spirits, they are possessed by such as are not gods but demons.' In like manner, because they have not been able to find for Mars any element or part of the world in which he might perform some works of nature, of whatever kind, they have said that he is the god of war, which is a work of men, and that not one which is considered desirable by them. If, therefore, Felicitas should give perpetual peace, Mars would have nothing to do. But if war itself is Mars, as speech is Mercury, I wish it were as true that there were no war to be falsely called a god, as it is true that it is not a god.' Chapter 15. But possibly these stars which have been called by their names are these gods. For they call a certain star Mercury, and likewise a certain other star Mars. But among those stars which are called by the names of gods is that one which they call Jupiter, and yet with them Jupiter is the world. There also is that one they call Saturn, and yet they give to him no small property besides, namely all seeds. There also is that brightest of them all which is called by them Venus, and yet they will have this same Venus to be also the moon, not to mention how Venus and Juno are said by them to contend about that most brilliant star, as though about another golden apple. For some say that Lucifer belongs to Venus, and some to Juno, but, as usual, Venus conquers. For by far the greatest number assign that star to Venus, so much so that there is scarcely found one of them who thinks otherwise.' But since they call Jupiter the king of all, who will not laugh to see his star so far surpassed in brilliancy by the star of Venus? For it ought to have been as much more brilliant than the rest, as he himself is more powerful. They answer that it only appears so, because it is higher up, and very much farther away from the earth. If, therefore, its greatest dignity has deserved a higher place, why is Saturn higher in the heavens than Jupiter?' was the vanity of the fable which made jupiter king not able to reach the stars and has saturn been permitted to obtain at least in the heavens what he could not obtain in his own kingdom nor in the capital but why has janus received no star if it is because he is the world and they are all in him the world is also jupiter's and yet he has one did janus compromise his case as best he could and instead of the one star which he does not have among the heavenly bodies except so many faces on earth Again, if they think that on account of the stars alone, Mercury and Mars are parts of the world, in order that they may be able to have them for gods, since speech and war are not parts of the world, but acts of men, how is it that they have made no altars, established no rites, built no temples for Ares, and Taurus, and Cancer, and Scorpio, and the rest which they number as the celestial signs, and which consist not of single stars, but each of them of many stars, which also, they say, are situated above those already mentioned in the highest part of the heavens, were a more constant motion causes the stars to follow an undeviating course and why have they not reckoned them as gods i do not say among those select gods but not even among those as it were plebeian gods chapter sixteen although they would have apollo to be a diviner and physician they have nevertheless given him a place as some part of the world they have said that he is also the sun and likewise they have said that diana his sister is the moon and the guardian of rhodes whence also they will have her be a virgin because a road brings forth nothing they also make both of them have arrows because those two planets send their rays from the heavens to the earth they make vulcan to be the fire of the world neptune the waters of the world father dis that is orcus the earthly and lowest part of the world liber and ceres they set over seeds the former over the seeds of males the latter over the seeds of females or the one over the fluid part of seed but the other over the dry part And all this together is referred to the world, that is, to Jupiter, who is called progenitor and mother, because he emitted all seeds from himself, and received them into himself. For they also make this same series to be the great mother, who they say is none other than the earth, and call her also Juno. And therefore they assign to her the second causes of things, notwithstanding that it has been said to Jupiter, progenitor and mother of the gods, because, according to them, the whole world itself is Jupiter's minerva also because they set her over human arts and did not find even a star in which to place her has been said by them to be either the highest ether or even the moon also vesta herself they have thought to be the highest of the goddesses because she is the earth although they have thought that the milder fire of the world which is used for the ordinary purposes of human life not the more violent fire such as belongs to vulcan is to be assigned to her And thus they will have all those select gods to be the world and its parts, some of them the whole world, others of them its parts, the whole of it Jupiter, its parts Genius, Mater Magna, Sol, and Luna, or rather Apollo and Diana, and so on. And sometimes they make one god many things, sometimes one thing many gods. Many things are one god in the case of Jupiter, for both the whole world is Jupiter, and the sky alone is Jupiter, and the star alone is said and held to be Jupiter.' Juno also is mistress of second causes. Juno is the air, Juno is the earth; and had she won it over Venus, Juno would have been the star. Likewise Minerva is the highest ether, and Minerva is likewise the moon, which they suppose to be in the lowest limit of the ether. And also they make one thing many gods in this way. The world is both Janus and Jupiter; also the earth is Juno, and Mater Mania and Ceres. Chapter seventeen. And the same is true with respect to all the rest, as is true with respect to those things which I have mentioned for the sake of example. They do not explain them, but rather involve them. They rush hither and thither, to this side or to that, according as they are driven by the impulse of erratic opinion, so that even Varro himself has chosen rather to doubt concerning all things than to affirm anything.' For having written the first of the three last books concerning the certain gods, and having commenced in the second of these to speak of the uncertain gods, he says, I ought not to be censured for having stated in this book the doubtful opinions concerning the gods. For he who, when he has read them, shall think that they both ought to be and can be conclusively judged of, will do so himself for my own part i can be more easily led to doubt the things which i have written in the first book than to attempt to reduce all the things i shall write in this one to any orderly system thus he makes uncertain not only that book concerning the uncertain gods but also that other concerning the certain gods moreover in that third book concerning the select gods after having exhibited by anticipation as much of the natural theology as he deemed necessary and when about to commence to speak of the vanities and lying insanities of the civil theology where he was not only without the guidance of the truth of things but was also pressed by the authority of tradition he says i will write in this book concerning the public gods of the roman people to whom they have dedicated themselves and whom they have conspicuously distinguished by many adornments. But, as Xenophon of Colophon writes, I will state what I think, not what I am prepared to maintain. It is for man to think those things, for God to know them. It is not, then, an account of things comprehended and most certainly believed which he promised, when about to write those things which were instituted by men. He only timidly promises an account of things which are but the subject of doubtful opinion nor indeed was it possible for him to affirm with the same certainty that janus was the world and such like things or to discover with the same certainty such things as how jupiter was the son of saturn while saturn was made subject to him as king he could, I say, neither affirm nor discover such things with the same certainty with which he knew such things as that the world existed, that the heavens and earth existed, the heavens bright with stars, and the earth fertile through seeds, or with the same perfect conviction with which he believed that this universal mass of nature is governed and administered by a certain invisible and mighty force. End of book seven. Preface in chapters one through seventeen. Recording by Darren L. Slider fort worth texas www.logoslibrary.org.